I think we got it. I think that was my problem. I kept clicking it to open it, and it was just opening in my messenger. Um, I think that had to have been it. So now it's open in my Safari at least. So yeah, even the screen help. looks better. Like it looks much. Yeah, I think this is it. <laughs> it must be, yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. I feel like I'm always um, on the phone with IT support for like stuff that from there and is like very elementary. You know? Yeah. It's like, no. I guess I didn't do this one thing or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And I always feel like really bad because people are probably like really smart and they're like, okay, open your preferences. You know? <laughs> well, no, a friend of ours is like dating a woman who's like in tech. And so she made a comment to him like, oh, the way you use your phone is so interesting. Like how he even just navigates the phone. So apparently our generation is just using everything wrong and it should be more intuitive. It's just not our version of intuitive, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we got, we got to catch <laughs> up. We had to catch up to it. And I mean, we, you know, first grew up with out the internet and then like had to as we were growing up like as we were maturing the internet was maturing you know yeah <laughs> it's wild which is pretty interesting <laughs> yeah it's, it's a wild time to grow up <laughs> yeah so um oh yeah i should we, i could get us kicked off here sure. by, by saying the title of the podcast awesome. you think too much with colin ronig this is my guest amanda almonds amanda and i We've known each, known each other since kindergarten, went to the same um, school in kindergarten, right? And no, first on... grade, first grade. I joined Harbor School in first. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. first grade. Yeah, So same um, difference. Yeah, so pretty much. <laughs> so since first grade, six years old, and Amanda is now a professor of psychology at yeah. New York City uh, College of Technology in Brooklyn. So welcome, Amanda. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here and happy to be here. We were in, we know we danced a minuet together um, in 1992. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> oh, this is the, um, it's like the Mozart play. Yeah. How many people can say they've danced a minuet together? Yeah. Well, do you, do you remember the name of that play? Yeah, it was Of Mice and Mozart. Oh, okay. That is a good, I, it's funny. Like, I don't think I've seen... Was that like a, a a real play that they made for like that they made like a kids version of? Or? Yeah, I think it was a play that was re like that was done specifically for children. Um, and it was kind of the story of Wolfgang Mozart. And I played his. You, I think you played Mozart, weren't you, oh, Young wow. Wolfgang? Maybe I, I don't remember. Yeah. I think you may have played Young Wolfgang. Um, I was the mother, and I remember my line. I have a weird memory like that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every every student had one line they had to say yeah <laughs> oh wow yeah that's funny um there's something about like yeah well at that age it's like everyone everyone's kind of a, of that ilk where you're you're willing to you know dance in front of strangers and like sing sure. and stuff like that yeah and then it like starts to go away around eighth grade <laughs> seventh or eighth grade you know yeah like hormones kick in and things get weird yeah <laughs> It's funny, in fifth grade, I was at St. Joe's then, and we did Treasure Island, and I was Jim Hawkins, so he's, like, the one of the main characters in Treasure okay. Island, and I had, like, a hundred lines, and, like, nice, or, just a lot of lines, and knew them, blocking, like, blocking, the whole deal, right? Yeah, like, knew them, no, <laughs> exactly, blocking, <laughs> um, staring to the camera, and winking at the camera, <laughs> <you know? laughs> nice. but I remember, like, I knew them, like, it was nothing, and I was, like, always practicing with my mom and stuff like that. And then, like, in high school, it was, like, I never had a main role. I always had these big parts where I had, like, ten lines. And it 
it was always like at the last minute where I was trying to remember them. Like, yeah, interesting. There's something about high school where, and I remember starting off reading a lot as a kid. Yeah. And then high school, like that, like that kind of went away. I was like watching TV or like kind of making fun of English during English class and like making fun of the reading instead of doing the reading. And then, I was under the impression, I felt like you were doing the reading. I really wasn't doing the reading, okay. but it always appeared to me that at least you bought the book, man. Like I was, <laughs> I went right down to the basement. What was the, the, the ground level floor in the crystal mall? Like I just, was it borders? I would just go and get the cliff notes um, <laughs> every time. Like I never even had the books. Like I was bad. I didn't, English was not my thing. I, I thought you were reading the books. You had me fooled. I, I was doing the, the reading. But yeah. I felt like it was kind of under duress, I guess. Um, Funny. <laughs> where it, it seemed like when I was younger, I started off like I was very, very interested in, in reading. And then um, and then it, it was almost like having that instilled in me when I was younger helped when I got a little bit older, though, because I kind of like came back to it. Yeah. But, um, I was doing the reading in high school, but it's like, you know, you. kind of dealing with everyone kind of deals with the high school um era in different ways I think <laughs> trying to figure out your, how to be a person in a lot of ways I mean that's like you know we yeah. just saw each other at a 20-year reunion and it just had me thinking about like um how it's it, well at the time it's such a large part of your life because it is it's like a quarter of your life you know yeah it's a full-time job it's I mean yeah. how many hours a week are you at school between extracurricular the commute like you know it's like my probably like 60 hours a week yeah yeah. And looking back, it's like, it, you know, childhood lays down a foundation for the rest of your life. And, and um, high school in particular, because like, um, I don't know, it's like, that's when your body starts to grow and hormones kick in. And it, it's like, you're starting to starting to become and even though you're young, it's like, you're kind of at that age, starting to be on the, the pathway to um, being an adult in a way. Interesting. Yeah, it is an interesting time. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I feel like for me, um, it was a lot of just doing. I was doing like a lot of thinking and doing, but not a lot of feeling. Like I always think of oh. the world as existing in those three categories, of course, because I'm like a psychologist. But like there's thinking, there's the feeling, and then there's doing stuff. And I feel like developmentally, it was a time where like I didn't, you don't understand the feeling. You're just doing a lot of shit. And then in yeah. hindsight, like you have that gift of hindsight to look back and be like, oh, that's what I was feeling. But at that age, it feels like you're feeling so much that you can't even pinpoint anything. You're just, for me, it was just like all acting out <laughs> <laughs> in every sense of the world, like word for, you know, for better or for worse. But it was just a very like an action oriented time in my development not like a very you know still like a little bit of thinking you know I thought yeah. I was I, I did things with intention even you know when they were like the worst of intentions um but it wasn't a time it was not a period of like feeling in high school so yeah our 20th high school reunion I felt personally like I felt like really emotional like oh. I felt like a lot of emotions regarding the connections I had the people I was seeing that I just never got to either express or you know fully feel you know 20 years ago yeah, yeah 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 that's interesting yeah. yeah and yeah i'm interested in you know talking about that myself um trying to think of like uh you know regarding other people's privacy and our own privacy too you know <laughs> especially that stuff that happened when, when we were kids um 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. That's interesting. You said. I like, I don't think I said feeling, anything crazy. I like, <laughs> feeling, thinking, and, and doing. Yeah, that's like the holy trinity in psych. That's just like, if you're not doing any one of those, you're dead. Like that, those are just the three things that we do. Yeah. Um, and like unique, definitely unique to our species because we're, you know, we're here with other species that, you know, that's not their way of survival. And in some ways there are species that are like, you know, outperforming us and they're not, that's not their three things. But like those are our, as humans, those are definitely like our three, um, I think are three big things. That's just, yeah, that's just the, oh, the, the way yeah. of, so that's like kind of sees the world. So even yeah. in like, even the kind of psychology that people think of every day when they think of counseling, like cognitive behavioral therapy, really popular counseling mo modality. I think a lot of people, um, you know, not in a clinical sense are even familiar with like cognitive behavioral therapy or maybe not, but that's precisely what it is, is that drawing that connection between thinking, feeling, doing. So um, yeah, developmentally, I feel like, like I said, I was acting out, not feeling a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I feel it all. <laughs> yeah. We're, you know, thinking back to, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this recently where I try to think back to my mindset at the time, but mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's through the lens of who I am in the present. So I don't sure. know how, how accurate I actually am, you know, yeah. in yeah, that yeah. assessment. Um, but do you kind of know, you know, to the degree that you're comfortable talking about where that came from or like kind of what, where, where that may have, um, or where, where that was coming from at, at the time with you? Oh, me and my actions. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Where it was coming from, I think. I'm thinking very uh, like anatomically. Like I was like, I think honestly, I feel like it was coming through my throat. I feel like I was a big <laughs> communicator. Like, I don't know. That's a weird way of thinking. Like, where is it coming from? It wasn't my gut. Like, I feel like I definitely was trying to suppress, like suppress things that like were inducing fear, you know, the topics that you're afraid of as an adolescent, whether it's like, um, you know, expressing your feelings of like romantic intimacy with somebody else or like your yeah. decisions with like your sexual behavior. So really repressing those things because those are pretty feeling things. And just, um, I was just, I was just vocal. I just remember always feeling, um, like what I, what I needed to, what I, what I had inside was valuable. <laughs> it probably, yeah. you know, and when you're 14 to 18, it's not all that valuable, but I remember just <laughs> always being, really um you know really confident and really self-assured so i think my acting out really came from a place it's like i really i really believed it like i really believed myself mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like a sense of cockiness or arrogance almost that you have i think for me i only had that at that age in my life like i don't i don't have that anymore but it was really a place of like self-assuredness and anything i think is very valid and needs to be heard and other people could could pick up on it so yeah. But again, I was trying yeah. not to, uh, at the same time by being very vocal, you draw a certain attention to yourself where you actually can get away with not having to deal with some of the other things you don't want to deal with. So maybe it was a little like defensive too at the time, you know? And do you think <clears throat> as you got older and you matured, um, do you see it as like you uh, repackaged that instinct like um i guess what am i trying to say like now you're 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 a teacher and um yeah professor uh, yeah rather and you know um 
um, teaching students, so in front of classes, students and, and publishing papers. So do you think it's like a more constructive outlet for that side of you in a way, if that makes sense? Yeah, like no, that older? for sure. Like, cause that's never changed. Like I still have an audience. I'm still, I feel like, you know, being a professor is very much so like theater, you know, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. it, it literally is theater. And I'm, you know, I'm very self-assured in what I have to say now <laughs> because people <laughs> care. Like I did the work, you know, to, to do it to execute it in a way that's you know peer reviewed and rigorous and all that fun stuff so now it's like I'm using that for good it's almost like I always knew I was going to be doing this I just didn't have the credentials you know and then now I, yeah. I, I earned them so maybe I was kind of like what do I have to do so I can keep talking to people like this and then they'll have to listen to me but truly not in a not in a vindictive not in a way of like um you know when I say like people will have to listen to me I'm I'm totally not like a power hungry ego centric person. And I wish I had like um, more evidence to support that, but like truly I'm not, I'm just saying like this, I just know that, that that's how I am. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Like using that predilection for like to help others rather than just, just to like be subversive and that kind of thing. Really okay. not even to help others just to have yeah. a good life, man. Yeah. I don't want to struggle. I just wanted to do something. I wanted ease. I just remember looking at my college professors. I went to Mitchell College for my undergrad and I went part-time forever. I was at Mitchell College in our hometown where we mm -hmm. both grew up um, for seven years, chipping mm -hmm. away at my bachelor's degree, going part-time, working full-time. And I remember just like taking it all in, you know, doing really well on the courses because that was part-time and I, and I wanted to be there. But I remember like when it clicked to me seeing the college professors and I would just, I would check out and I would stop listening to what they were lecturing about. And I started... Um, really imagining like what is this what is this guy's life like yeah <laughs> like, what does this guy do because he seemed real is i'm thinking of a professor i think it's not a matter he's, he's retired um jeff turner jeffrey turner professor turner mm -hmm. um and he's actually a local band that grew up in waterford connecticut a neighboring town but i remember just the moment clicked in me i'm like man he seems to like yeah it just looked really easeful and i see people i just something about it i i knew really early on that I wanted to be a professor because it just didn't even though I knew how much work it would take I know ultimately it would set me up to where I would never have to feel like I'm doing work and I don't know how I knew that but um so far so good <laughs> yeah yeah and so do you think that um having the what Jeffrey Turner as a professor do you think do you view that as directly leading to um, you, oh, what led you, I guess, to uh, continue on to get your master's in psychology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just listen to people. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I just listen to people. People told me I should, I just listened to my advisor. Um, there was a new faculty a professor that came on at Mitchell College that was my instructor. Um, and she was fresh out of grad school. And, you know, my advisor's um, we're kind of looking at me towards the end. I'm like, yeah, you should, you should consider this. You know, you have the knack for it. Um, I, I got into an honor society and part of like the breakout group work was to set a goal. And I'm like, all right, like to have something to do, I guess I'll apply to a few master's programs. Like it kind of just, um, it was really, it was really organic. Like I just had the good mentorship and I had some, um, good peers like around me that we were just like, let's set some goals and try them out. Um, yeah, so I think I was just really lucky to have the right people, the right people around me telling me to do it. 
and I didn't even think psychology, the, the master's program that was recommended to me is the, I was the um, master's program at Connecticut College, which is which is in psychology. And it was really just kind of I, you know, the person, the professor who told me about it, it was her former advisor, she saw me as a psychologist, even though my undergrad um, was was uh, human development and family studies, which isn't necessarily psychology. Um, I never identified myself as someone who wanted to study psych, who wanted to help people, like, wasn't my jam. But again, like, I trusted the people who had spent the seven years with me at Mitchell watching me grow. And so if they told me that this made sense for me, I distrusted them. And so that's kind of how it happened. I also applied to um, a CUNY school, Hunter, um, which is funny because oh, yeah. I work with CUNY. And I got accepted to Hunter and then I got accepted to Khan. And I'm like, oh, no, Khan's a better school. It's, a, you know, it's in my town and everything. Um, so that's where I ended up going. Um, and then same thing for my PhD program at Cod College, listening to my advisors like, oh, you're definitely PhD bound. This is what I mean. I just think, yeah, someone put the right people <laughs> in my path to tell me what to do. And much un very unlike my teenage self, I, I actually listened. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting what you say about. um I wanted to bring this up before I forgot about it. That's yeah. one thing I'm learning with the, the podcast is like, um, it's easy to like, oh, I'm going to bring that up later. And then I forget about no, it. No, you got to do it. I can also take notes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I just been thinking more about like what you said about thinking, feeling and, and doing that's so interesting in some ways. I think like I had a somewhat similar experience in high school or I was doing, you know, I was like, yeah. um, Definitely had like um, uh, this idea that like I gotta do sports. I have to do good in class, <laughs> and um, yeah. And it's interesting. I think like was I not just interesting the combination between feeling and thinking. I remember mm. feeling a lot. So, but even though I was doing, I felt stuck within myself. I guess what connected with me with what you said about acting out was. I felt like I did that to a degree. It was just like um, uh, more like uh, messing around with my friends and stuff like that um, mm. or like cracking jokes. Like I was really good at like being the funny kid, like the goofy kid. And I was- You were really cool. observant, Colin. I feel like you were really observant and you were very, very comical. Yeah, very comical, but it did hide like there were- the more, I don't know what you would call them, serious feelings that yeah, like for sure. were cut off from me. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, I knew like I wanted to, I mean, you're at that age where like dating becomes a thing and like that was like not, like I couldn't, you know, even though like. Yeah, those are tough feelings to act out, right? Like the, yeah. the really hard feelings that you're feeling are not ones that are just easily to like set intentions for like, all right, and then I'm going to do it. Like it just didn't. Yeah, I totally feel what you're saying. And it is, it's strange because sometimes I think about that sometimes and it feels like weird to think about. But I do think there's like a, because I'm like older now or we're older, but I do think for me, there's a direct correlation between that side of me and the side of me that went to um, the Naval Academy. Because mm. even though it's, you know, this um, quote unquote, like, you know, uh, prestigious school or whatever have you, like that's, I'm. Um, I'm just saying like what the, you know, what I 
what people might say about it. It was yeah, in the yeah. family. I, I, it's multi-generational. My grandfather and my father and my older brother all went there. Yeah. So in some ways it was kind of the easy thing for me to do. Mm. Um, and well, it's it, not easy, but maybe like easy. expected or expected, you know, not yeah. like a reach, like not, it wouldn't be a shock, you know? There's some connection, I think like between me, like, um, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk to that girl, you know, like I, like mm. no way, you know, and, and being like, yeah, I'll go to the Naval Academy. Like I can't quite articulate it, but, um, just, it's more of, um, I know, well, we were texting about this word agency and that was interesting. And in some ways, like, I do think it is related to agency where I felt like I, I, I wasn't necessarily told people around me that it, I didn't have agency, but looking back, it felt like I didn't have a lot of, um, personal agency and mm, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah and it's not like a big it's my life is you know li life is good but it's still affecting me in the fact that i mean all of our choices have um effects on our life but like a military academy it's a very specific choice because it's four years it's the military for and sure. then for me it was eight years after that and then yeah i'm still in industry now that's like directly related to that time. yeah so yeah in some ways that's like and then going back to, for the reunion too, it like um, ca caused me to kind of reflect on, on that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, you know, like you bringing up the thinking, feeling, and and doing. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I think too with like, because like I'm not to say that there weren't feelings going on, but they were just. Yeah. It was so. Um, so like latent <laughs> it was just so discreet. It was just. It was just so deep under the surface, but. It in many ways it wasn't like in the lived experience. I had no idea that my actions were really reflecting a lot of deep emotions. But in hindsight, when you look back, it's like, oh my gosh, of course you were doing this because you were feeling that. But in the yeah. moment, it just feels so. It feels just like very, um, I don't know, maybe almost like visceral. You're just like doing a bunch of stuff. But like when I look in hindsight, something I've always reflected on um, with aging is that when I think about who I spent a lot of my time with, maybe it was just like the junior and senior year. Cause I think that's, what's like freshest in your mind or just the, like there were the, the memories are really solid for me. Um, as I hung around a lot of, um, a lot of people that were in pain. Like when I look around at the group, I'm like, I, I hung around people that were using, you know, really hard drugs mm. and really early age or people who I didn't know it then but now when I look back we're probably coming from homes where like shit wasn't good like yeah. I was hanging around a very very like dark crowd and I didn't know it at the time but it felt totally right and I, I would never regret it and I think I, there was definitely like a darkness within me and my own you know personal life you know that I probably didn't realize mm -hmm. but um I would never trade that for the world because I think I'm almost getting choked up thinking about it now because these are people that like other people um necessarily didn't hang around you know yeah um but there are people that I was really really close with and a lot of my high school experience that wasn't in the classroom I feel like I was like a very um I feel like a very like dual life I still am. I've always had like very dual things going on where I'd show up for the honors classes and do really well and then the other classes that didn't matter I skipped and I hung out, you know, routinely, regularly with a group of people um, in those two worlds. Truly, like, I think it'd be hard for others to imagine even like coexisting. Um, yeah. But for me, it just felt that it just felt exactly like who I was. But it was definitely like having a foot on each side of the line. Um, 
And I remember each year, each year coming back, like, I still got in honors. Like, I still got good enough grades. I'm still in this program. Like, mm-hmm. okay, if y'all want to keep putting me in honors, I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> but I also was very much so drawn to, like, let's smoke cigarettes, let's smoke pot, let's mm-hmm. drink, let's just experiment, like, let, you know, so... I would never, I would never trade that for the world. And I was so happy to see some of those faces um, going back for the 20th. I was just like, so grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Did that, um, you talked about like, uh, was it a, a foot in two different worlds kind of thing? Did that change yeah. as you, um, during your time at, at Mitchell? <laughs> no, I still live <laughs> my life into it. I still live dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't mean literally dangerously, but no, I've never, um, I've just never abandoned parts of me. Like I've just always, yeah. I've never been like, well, I got to be this now. Like even like, I've always struggled. Maybe since I'm a woman and a professional woman, I don't know if others mm-hmm. struggle with this, but like even struggle with like my style of dress and my identity. And I'm like, man, this is who I am. You're not going to see me in a button down in a pantsuit. Never. Yeah. Like, you know, like I just, and I drive around and I play really loud music saying really bad (laughs) words um you know and like (laughs) that's still it's never I would never in a million years ever want to be any anything else but like kind of in in two worlds and I'm really grateful that I've been able to manage that like successfully and I don't like I don't even maybe it's a little disclosing too much but like I don't even keep close close friends among my work colleagues because it Mm -hmm. is such like a separate um, a separate thing. They don't need to know, you know, that my music's really, really loud and says, you yeah. know, <laughs> really <Yeah>. bad words. <laughs> maintain, maintain some independence. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one reason I, um, I miss the side of the military. I mean, it's kind of a codependent atmosphere because mm. you're very close to people and I, I, I do miss that, but it's also just like, it can feel kind of controlling and suffocating too. Yeah. That's not always it's not necessarily insidious it's just like because you're all there to kind of do you're all there to be part of one culture and one thing Mm. and that's like that's what can be a little bit lonely having Mm -hmm. left the military Mm -hmm. but also freeing Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and in a lot of ways like um i don't know how much growing i did during my 30s just because i was in my 30s or sometimes i think about 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 this like um, and I don't know if it's an ex- it's philosophy or existential or just or or what, but I don't know if I did that growing in my 30s because um, I was in my 30s, or if leaving the military allowed me to do that growing and and mm. and trying to be a writer and and what that requires in terms of just like um, reflection and things like that. You know, probably um, probably some combination of both for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this may seem like a simple thing or like a naive thing to say, but I think there there's something in academia where like that's completely lacking. <laughs> You're gonna think I'm a duckbag, but like it'd be really nice to have like a connecting thread. I think a lot of folks in academia feel real, real disconnected. Like we're a weird bunch. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of cohesion. I mean, I've tried to go out for a beer a couple times, and it's just not natural. And I just, I've always joked, and this has gotten a lot of laughs at my office, but I'm like we messed up in the fact that like we should all dress the same. So I feel like (laughs) (laughs) you spend all this money. I don't know if you know this, but like doctoral regalia is really fucking expensive. And then um, if you're not like me, I didn't buy it. I rented it, but now I have to go to graduation every year and I'm an idiot. It's year eight and I still keep renting it. I just need to like buy it. So I've spent like probably 
over a grand now, right? Just buying the same <laughs> doctoral cap and gown. And so I said to friends, like my colleagues at work, I was like, we should just wear our caps and gowns. Like we should just teach in this. Like it should be like a very Harry Potter, like professors look like this. I think maybe the Navy had it right with the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like, so we, we don't have to wake up every day thinking about what am I going to wear, you know? It's yeah, just, like, it's so the worst. And we're supposed weird. to, all, and it feels like we're all doing very different things. And I think some of my colleagues do need to be reminded, like, we're actually all here serving the same purpose. I think people really, really forget that. So as much as that's a deficit, or as you described it as maybe like, you know, not ideal to your growth in the 30s, I feel like those are some things I almost envy in my role where that kind of would be useful. Like, I feel like we forget that we're all here for students, like students first, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think if we wore our caps and gowns every day, that <laughs> might kind of get us there, you know? <laughs> and we wouldn't have to worry about what to wear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more of a connection. It's interesting that um, because, you know, I met, well, I think it's harder to make like close friends as you get older. Um, and then, you know, a lot of my military friends from the Academy in particular, like we're still really close. And it's That's interesting awesome. because some of these people are like, couldn't be more different politically. <laughs> like, ah, yeah. um, to the point where I'm just like, I can't believe this person, you know? Um, and, and also just some of them are still active duty in the Marines. Are they really the your friends though, Colin, the ones that are that differently pol politically, like, are they really your friends? Like you would have them in your home for food and like bring them over and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the, wild. Not, not all of them, but, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I was just curious. Well, sometimes, I was like, sometimes really? just, you know, and I don't necessarily mean that like because of their views, but just because we grow apart, but yeah. Okay. Something about going, and this isn't everyone's, um, cause I do understand it's, um, uh, this, I don't. I don't think this is too woke, but officers in the military among the officers, it's it's very white, very male. So I do yeah. think like some people aren't that they they do have a different experience um, for sure. Oh, and don't I, get um, me wrong. Like I love, I've always loved white males. <laughs> that may be a weird <laughs> thing to say, but like a married one. Yeah. My favorite person was my grandfather, who was like a Republican white male. So like, there's a love there, but there's yeah. also a lot of other shit there too. So like, no, 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 I get it. But like, I feel like politically, if you're if you're making mistakes, man, I'm not feeding you. You're not coming in my house. Like, if you're making those kind of bad calls. <laughs> What's it, why did I bring that up? Um, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, no, no. It was like <laughs> I was really challenging you. Like, don't. No, no, no. It, it's good. Lose your yeah. friends that are. Yeah. Like, are they real? Well, sometimes I wonder, like, because I am getting to that point where I, I feel like I'm, I'm moving away from my military background. And um, so it is, and, and also a lot of my military friends have families, things like that. So it's, yeah. it's harder, like, I should actually be friends with them. Yeah. And um, oh, man, this is like, I need to start taking notes of these future ones, because it is hard. It's like, I'm trying to keep track of like, four different things in my brain yeah i'm um, sorry oh, okay. and i feel so like that's went... how i talk as well all right sorry. so <laughs> I, I do think there's something about the military where it, yeah is you're having this shared experience together kind of some trauma bonding in a way like going through yeah. boot camp or that equivalent and then at the academy it's like you go through for four years together there in this very like close and um uh close environment um sometimes like kind of a a fucked up environment so there's a lot of loyalty there and yeah it's interesting so even though i'm i definitely made the right decision to 
get out of the military and, and was lucky enough to get into an MFA and writing program. Like I, I had a lot of trouble um, getting along with my classmates in my MFA. Uh, and it was mm. almost like, like you talk about, and um, you know, being outspoken in high school, it was almost like that was, that was like my time to be outspoken was like, yeah, without a cause, you know, I'm, I'm oh, man, like, it's just like just a bad time culturally, Colin. I feel you. I could see how that could just have backfired. Yeah. Just where we are, you know? <laughs> right. Where we are. And it came straight from active duty. And um, yeah, no, you probably should have been quiet. <laughs> right. Yeah. I should have been quiet. It was the first time I was ever called a bro was yeah. in grad school. And I was like, kind of, um, I was like flattered in a way, but also insulted. Like, I never. You ever been flattered and insulted at the same time? I don't like, know. I can't answer that like question that, on like the a spot. Bro or a classmate telling you like you would have, you know, you, I think you would have done really, really well in a frat, you know, in college. And I'm like, that's incredible. Like no one's ever told me that. Before. You're like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, you know, I went to a military academy, right? Um, which is essentially like one big frat in a way. Did it feel like you were passing? Was that this? I mean, because I can that what you describe almost sounds like passing. Oh, like um, I was passing as a bro. No, passing as like not having a military background. Like they're not even suspecting. Oh, right. that... yeah, right. <laughs> that's maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah that's a very common experience for like um, like brown people or multi ethnic people. Is like these people don't even know I'm black right now. This is hilarious. Oh yeah, no, please is... keep talking. Go ahead. Yeah, like, this, this happens to me a lot where people like are saying shit and they have no idea I'm a black woman. Um, and it's hilarious. I love it. Like I love when I'm like, oh no, go on. <laughs> Oh, you pretend I'm not here. <laughs> people think you're white or another. Ethnicity. Or people will think I'm something, um, especially in New York City. Um, people oh, okay. just not They will just not know. They will just say not. They, I think they, there's I've just heard. Well, I could be wrong. I've heard people say things that I feel like they would really would not say in front of a black person. So I'm assuming they don't know. Maybe they do know and they're just being crazy. But um, I've heard things where I'm like, there's no way they could know. I'm, they wouldn't say that in front of me. Um, so I kind of chuckle. I'm like, this is really funny. They don't, they don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's like, hopefully they're not. Yeah. Is that, is that experience negative for you? Do you find it comical? Oh, um, it depends. It depends on the day on the context, the mood, how much I eat, how much I slept, the person, you know, the vibe, it depends. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, absolutely. it really does. Okay. It's hard to say like a lot of, I could laugh, but I like recall and recollect it. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's really bad because sometimes when I know like those it's hurtful and it's coming from a person who like definitely should not be, it can be bad because it's like really problematic. And then I like you get pissed because I'm like, okay, now I have to do something, you know, because this is my job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because when you described it, when you said, you know, first you would ask, have I ever been flattered and insulted at the same time? And then when you describe it, I'm like, oh, that's just passing. But I guess it is kind yeah. of like having those two things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I look back on that and, you know, it's a good experience overall, but sometimes I do feel a little bit conflicted or just like, um, like a little bit salty about it. But at the same time, I was also very, uh, I was very angry. I was, I was expressing a lot of anger and maybe mm -hmm. it just was just because it was coming out. Like in some ways it was, um, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of like a good analogy here or, or, or a good way to describe it. Um, it was like I felt too maybe 
Tibbin in the environment of the military. I was going to say, it sounds like delayed rage. Was it yeah. delayed rage? Yeah, it was like, <laughs> right. It was like Tibbin in the, in the environment to express that anger. But then among people who like weren't like that, it was coming out. It was almost yeah. like, it, to me, it's almost like, you know, if um, someone gets hit by their parent and then they go to school and they hit like the kid that is like more timid than them or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, I wasn't doing some something like that but yeah that might be like kind of the psychological thing that was was going on there um you can speak maybe you can or not speak to that but you can you might be able to recognize that better than i would well like can you can you relate to like can you understand and relate to like the heavy eye rolls that people would give to like you know the white guy out of the military who just realized he's mad and how that other people are like, um, okay. Like, can you understand how the people are coming from? (laughs) Fulfilling a stereotype. Right. Well, it's not a stereotype. It's a real perception. It's not like even people were pigeonholing you, but like a perception that they form of you is very much so something they, they people piece to piece together. And so I feel like as I come to understand you, like, I feel like you can understand why people were like, "Mm," you know, I Maybe not. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that because difficult... it's not surprising for me to hear like when you describe the experience and I'm like contextualizing, I'm like, oh, I could see how then that would have like, that's not too surprising. I can see the, I think the difficult thing is, and that in the really particular thing about an MFA is like, so your writings. So I'm like going through this stuff real time. And I'm either writing about it or I'm, I'm, um, it's like being processed in real time. And then all my classmates are reading that, right? And there's no way to separate. There's no way for someone That's to... really raw. That's a really raw, raw space yeah. to be in. I and hear that. Okay. In that environment, like you are making personal okay. judgments okay. of people. No, thank uh, you for on... explaining that to me. No, 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 no. That's raw. That's harsh. Yeah. Like, that's just, yeah, that's tough. And so I do think it... And in that environment, it made me reactive where I was like, either just like, fuck it. And uh, if they're going to like be pissing me, I might as well try to piss them off. <laughs> um, or it made me like very pleasing. Uh, it made me very reactive. And in, in a oh, lot of ways, like, you, Colin, you're taking me on such a wild ride with this story. I'm like, I go between having empathy for you yeah. and hating you back and forth. Like I've, I've gone on quite a roller coaster ride. In this yeah. story. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it was like, but it was weird. It felt like this, like, fire hose. Like, I felt like, you know, yeah. Cyclops without his glasses. Like, I needed to find my glasses to yeah. control, control it. Well, I um, would say it's always shitty to piss people off intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's always shitty. Like, and that's coming. You know, I'm a pretty shitty person, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And with writing, it can be hard because that's why it was nice to leave that environment because I think if I write something that's honest and like a story that I think if it does please him or does piss him off, that's okay. But if I'm trying to do either, I think if you're trying to make something that's honest, mm. like okay. real art to sound pretentious, I think it no, has, it's to not pretentious. From, like a, has to come from a place that's transcends that in a way um and it's okay if some people are some people like it and some people don't like it but um i think it was difficult in that environment to i didn't have that perspective for one and then two i was like trying to figure out how to write at the same time because i had done some writing 
but, but not a kind of tough environment to you don't really have like temporal space for that mm. even if you have like time it's not it's not or like if you can imagine it's not really like, like a culture that <laughs> well and like um, i feel like in what in what ways did it tax you like how was it were you like having heavy emotions were you losing sleep was there a decline like in what way or was it in grad school or in the military um in grad school program oh um well like um i would say it was coming out in my writing so like how it was affecting me yeah um yeah so like um angry emails um sometimes you know replying replying all you know uh no but was there like real was there pain in your life oh uh yeah yeah um why like so my last active duty tour was um i was trying to i, I was on a plane in oklahoma for my first tour and i was like trying to get out of there so i took these orders to japan and i was like oh that could you know sounds exciting and and exotic and so i was there for and they sent me for training for a year and i got i got to know the language a little bit but i was the only american living and working with the japanese navy on an island so it was i didn't know what they were saying uh, when they were speaking japanese because it was way above my level and um, I was there Monday to I finally got a second apartment in Hiroshima. I finally met people there. But from Monday to Friday, or I'd, I'd have to come back Sunday night. I'd, I had to take the ferry. Um, I was I was around people either where it was complete gibberish what they were saying, or they would speak to me in broken English. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very very isolating mm, environment, mm -hmm. especially for two years. Yeah. And then I, I came straight from that to um, Colorado, right? Straight to Colorado. You know, I did have like an interlude where. So I did meet this woman and it was it's like basically a fling. But like I mm -hmm. was like convinced I was like in love with this person. Mm -hmm. And I do think it was directly related to. It's just hard to ex explain like that level of isolation for two oh years. my god no 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 colin like you don't have to explain it like i could totally get it like it'd be to me i'm like the first person i'd see off an airplane i'm like you smiled at me we're in love you bought me coffee this is meant to be you don't understand yeah. getting married. like i i mean that's my exaggerated version of it but like completely understood like very understood and i i mean i i i was i should have been in should have been talking about it with like a, a therapist or i would and i my anxiety was like through the roof when I was yeah. in Colorado. And yeah, you were a live wire, man. It sounds I, like I was a live like, wire. And, yeah. You know, hurt and, people, hurt people, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I was, I was curious, like, because I feel I was trying to understand if, like, the master's program was causing you pain and, like, the experience of, like, your writing and people calling you out as, like, a bro, if that was causing you pain. I, 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 it was initially that. And I, like, even though I, felt like the military was wrong I mean I spent a long time I spent four years in college and then eight years like accruing all this time and, and clout and financial stability and then now I'm like in grad school but it's like I'm writing these bad short stories I'm you know um I'm kind of I felt kind of isolated and like mm -hmm. I went from Japan feeling a little bit isolated to like now I'm like like away from this woman I thought I was in love with yeah, but yeah. like going through that and, and trying to figure out how to, and I became friends with a couple of women in my program. Um, 
And I was like, I think just like talking about it too much. And eventually like one of them just like stopped talking to me. Um, yeah. And that, uh, and I think it was like, just because I couldn't like, like everything was just coming out of me like a fire hose and I was just yeah. like a slide wire. And, but also I just, I felt bitter about that, but I felt shame about it. And, and, um, yeah. and the things I was writing about, it was just like very, I felt like the, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, like, remember when the uh, there's like the the guy that like the the army veteran fatigues that works at like Elaine's like Hallmark yeah. card writing. I felt yeah. like that guy, like writing yeah, really not stuff about like um, no, no, no. I know exactly what you're talking about like with that, his, little, but, his little vest on. No, yeah. I can see it clearly in my mind. Yeah, yeah, and also one of the it's and this isn't it's just the truth. Like um, in the, the military is like eighty percent men. MFA was like 80% women. So I do think like being this guy writing about kind of about some intense guy things, masculine things, whatever masculine means um, that could have been off-putting as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think like, we, <laughs> I, I, I felt like if we could have all, had we had like Mari Popovich to bring us together at the end of the program and talk about it, that would have helped. But it just felt like one of those things that like, um you're a cat on a tin roof Colin. yeah none of us were like gonna <laughs> really talk about it and, and i my grad school now yash he, he was kind of ostracized a little bit too so i was just like um like fuck it i'm just gonna hang out with yash we're gonna drink beer we're gonna watch movies we're gonna like uh you know have a laugh that kind of thing yeah and um it was just a really strange experience and it was like some of it was like some some of it I feel like ashamed of my behavior, and then some of it is just like like I don't know that that was just something I was going through, and also grad school is a place where people are just like supposed to say like um feel say what's on their mind and feel like they're hundred percent right about it. I don't know like so it's a very strange experience like going from twelve years of the military because I count the Naval Academy as well, yeah, and also I was But going straight from that to like, now I'm in not only grad school, but not only in a small town in Colorado, but in a creative writing program in a small town in like liberal Colorado. And I am more liberal, but I learned going there, like it's a spectrum. So not to see that. See, now I'm turning, making the podcast about me. I'm, I'm afraid yeah. of that. But, um, that you have to, yeah, that's something, um, I'm always, gonna, I'm always going to try to do that, though, I think. Uh, yeah, I'll try not to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, it's okay. I didn't want you to feel like I was leaving you out because you're the guest. No, no, um, no. All good. Yeah. So that was like, that was a very, it was a difficult time. And I kept on, I was, I kept on convincing myself like I was going to quit and, and that kind of stuff. I'm glad I didn't because I'm still writing and realizing how important that is to me and, and all yeah. things really I mean to that, grad but. school is um real specific the grad school experience I don't think is um you know um it's really it's really specific per discipline and like per program I don't I think a lot of people talk about grad school like there's just one universal experience of it and I just don't yeah. think I just don't think that's the case I think every grad school experience is like really really different um yeah but yeah. I think people go into it like with a mentality, like there's a grad school culture. Um, and I don't know if there really is one. I think it might be a myth a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think like. 
I mean, other than broken tired, that's a theme. Um, like for grad school, but other than that, I don't know. I don't know what's really shared, you know, across different programs. Some are wildly competitive. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just they're all so different. I do think like in undergrad I felt part of that school. In grad school I felt like part of that program, not part of Colorado State, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, I because I'm I went to Con College and um like for if you don't go to college for undergrad, it's like a very small uh, master's program for a handful of disciplines. I think it's like physics, psych. They have like maybe five masters. Um, so when I say like, oh, I'm a camel, and people expect me like, oh, did you go to party at like the Holleran Center or whatever the fuck? I don't even. Know. I think that's like the help desk. I don't really. Know. <laughs> but I'm like, no, not my experience. Like yeah. I remember taking a lot of fake IDs from Con College students when I bartended <laughs> at stashes. Like again, that dual role. Like not not the way you think. So you know. <laughs> Like, I think that counts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have like the con college experience. I had the con college like master's experience. I think I definitely, um, I get that. Yeah. It, it's grad school is, um, its own beast. And then it's right. Each, each grad program is a little bit different than, than the other. And, uh, overall it was a good experience though. I mean, I hope yeah. my classmates and sometimes I can be like, hard on myself and focus on the the negative like it's interesting yeah. looking back in high school like I I the difference between thinking and feeling and doing and I keep coming back to that because I think that's that's really um that's really cool I'm sure I've come across that at some point but yeah I definitely remember being very comical and then but then when I look I have the best stories and, and that kind of trying to those two it's almost like that's the ways those are the ways that I think I was living in two different worlds in a way in mm, high school and for trying sure. to reckon, yeah. reckon with that in a way is um is interesting because I do think like our past experiences like we're living you know we're living our past experiences in, in the present in a way yeah but that's at least my I, you're the psychologist you can tell me when I'm wrong but I, sometimes, sometimes I feel like um, I can definitely feel that for sure like you're living your past experiences in the present um, just in the sense that like I don't necessarily mean like that I'm constantly thinking about the past just like in the sense that like our past experiences like shaped us like work like what am I trying to say like living in the present is constantly, you're constantly taking like one, you're constantly moving into the future one second at a time. Mm. And that all of your past experiences, this is actually like something I've been writing a little bit, that all of your past experiences before that is, is kind of shaping who you are and shaping the choices that you're able to make in the future. Um, so oh, yeah, that's not like a radical. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just development. That's just, I think that's just like a very, that's, yeah, generally just growth. Yeah. All past yeah. moments were once present moments, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. I, I uh, right, like that, that's a very smart and good way to say it. So sometimes I would take like way too many words to. Oh, I'm the same else. way, please. <laughs> <laughs> My body made another human. So like I really lost a lot of words. There's something that happens to our mind, our brains during, um, 
like when the fetus is developing our, our minds, our brains prune themselves to make um, way for like future neural connections that are, you know, requisite for maternal instincts and, and juggling things. So when they say there's like a pregnancy brain, it's truly like when you become a mom, you, your brain, um, you lose a little bit. So I always joke with my husband, like I lost a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say a lot of the things I used to be able to. Wait, and are you, wait, sorry, are you saying you're, pre you're pregnant now? Oh no, I'm not pregnant now. I just oh, okay. they never came back after Charlie. I feel like after my oh, daughter, gotcha. they yeah, right. They lost Charlie like took him. I was way more articulate. Never... Yeah, she has the words now. I don't have them. She has the words now. <laughs> yeah. Damn it, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. She, she could have them. She could take them off. No, I struggle to find the right words all the time. Um, so you let's see. So you did your PhD program in yeah. Rhode Island. Yep. And then how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, yeah, I just applied for the job and they were like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I didn't do anything exceptional. I mean, I guess I had a good interview. I, I did a mock teaching demo. Um, it went well. So, okay, so no, I, I'm, I'm missing a, a step here, though. That's not fair. So University of Rhode Island, um, it's funny, my undergrad, to get my bachelor's degree, it was seven and a half years that went part-time. And then I got my master's in two and my PhD in three. And I was like the second fastest person to go through the PhD program. Well, in the psych PhD program at URI, there was one other guy, Sonny Dewar. He did it in two and a half. He's like a legend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was right behind him at three. We had the same advisors. I think our advisor just like hustled. Um, yeah. So no, my last year. So I was at URI, you know, I, I never, I never lived I never lived in a dorm. <laughs> I don't know if that's a funny thing to go to college for 12 years and like never have a college. Oh, wow. I've never gone to like college parties. Like, I don't know anything about Greek life or anything. Like I always was a commuter. Um, wow. So URI, I went, I commuted to 45 minutes, you know, um, yeah. the first two years. And then my last year I applied for a pre-doctoral fellowship at the university of Connecticut. So they were offering pre-doctoral fellowships in the, um, Department of Africana Studies. And so my my research has always been on race and on Black Americans. Mm -hmm. And so it was a teaching fellowship where I would just get, you know, they pretty much pay me. I'd have an office there. I would teach there. And it would support my last year. The last year, you're, I don't I didn't have classes to take. You're pretty much banging out your dissertation. So I'm like, awesome. Let me go to UConn, right? Let me go sit in the office there and teach there. Um, and I worked my advisor in that program Um is a man, Jelani Cobb. He's kind of a, he's kind of a big deal. He does a lot of, he's one of those talking heads on television. He did a lot of the, um, he continues to do a lot of huge correspondence um, for Fox and MS, not Fox. I can't believe that was the first one that came out of my mouth. MSNBC, CNN, definitely not Fox. Um, but he covered a lot of, um, like as a race scholar around the Trayvon Martin case. I mean, when I was there was the big thing, but he's still to this day, like I see him on the news all the time so he was a very coveted like race expert that i wanted to work with because again it wasn't a science program it wasn't a psych program it was just an africana studies program so i somehow land nailed that interview with him and got into that because um i don't know if folks are like hip to this but like african study programs really really aren't um a lot of like sciences like hard sciences there's not a lot of you know psychologists biologists you know neuros neuroscience folks in african studies it's usually political science history anthro so i was like the only person doing you know like math and stuff 
for my dissertation in this program. But I got it. And what I liked about it is I got to teach it a course. I got to write a course and develop it and teach it there. Very, very cool. But it was one of those things where like I had to have a goal and an outcome. And in that time at UConn, I, I really set my sights on like the schools I wanted to teach at. So that's where I found City Tech. And I also applied um, to University of California, Irvine. Um, and they didn't offer me an interview, but I had, I had a trip out to Irvine, like after I applied anyways, to see that neighborhood, to see if I could like envision myself in Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, but everything happens for a reason. I'm up yeah. here in Brooklyn. It's a job I got. But really, UConn is what gave me the, the fellowship at UConn is what really gave me the discipline to sit down and apply for tenure track um, positions. I don't know what else I would have done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that last year because that last year you're just writing your dissertation not everyone gets a fellowship like others in my cohort you know you're just home writing and I, I I wanted that I'm just glad I got that extra support again to like help me develop as an instructor um and to get me to apply to jobs now was um doing clinical psychology work an option or am I never for me no, okay, never, for you. Okay. never wanted yeah. to help people that's not true though so after um during my master's do I have that right yeah during my master's I actually worked not as a licensed clinical psychology but to in a very clinical setting um and I remember the day I left this job I cried like a baby I was so sad to leave this job I also remember giving away like half of my belongings at this job. So this is why I'm not a clinical psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, like to your patients you're giving away? Yeah, from? they weren't like patients. They're referred to, yeah. um, they're members. So that's the yeah. optional service. They don't have to be there. They're members of a club. So I worked at a very, very, very special place um, in Norwich, an organization called Reliance House. Reliance House has like 20, 30 different, you know, satellite programs all over Southeastern Connecticut that look real different, you know, some are where people, you know, some programs are housing for people with mental health issues and um, addiction issues. Some of them are, you know, we're just giving you car services. They have services. It's a huge, huge organization is what I'm trying to say. So what I did with them, I worked at a place called um, Penobscot Place because it was on a little hill road called Penobscot in Norwich. Um, and it was a day program. It was like a, a drop-in day program for adults who had severe mental illness and a history of addiction and everybody was sober and of recovery um but people would come and get dropped off between the hours i want to say it was like 10 to 3 and we had some structured activities you would like hang in a group we'd read some readings from like um recovery books i would cook them a meal i ran a pantry out of there where they could come and get groceries so i worked under one one person there and it was um i was there for almost two years and that was my my clinical experience where I was trying to help people. Um, part of my job was in the evenings, I would pick up this old van and I would drive around and pick up all the people who would go to AA meetings. Um, and that was really interesting because, you know, for I think some of, some of the AA meetings were closed. So I would, you know, sit outside in the van, but others were open where I could go um, and sit in with folks. So I, I did do what I would call like very hands-on, like helping people in a direct way, but it was never ever my intention <laughs> to stay in that role because that's yeah. draining work because I yeah. I mean I'm gonna love people I can't do that for pay you know like if I'm yeah. gonna love you and help you I can't be getting paid for it for as, as a career that just doesn't feel right so it was great for the year and a half but like I gave these people these are like I still think about them you know and wonder about them and and all that stuff so 
yeah I did it but I liked I liked research like very much so like high school Amanda like let's find a point let's prove it um Mm -hmm. yeah I just knew I didn't want to work with people directly even though I did have a little bit of experience doing that and what you know in terms of your research um what initially interested you and, and what are you um researching or developing now yeah thanks great question um <clears throat> um, let me take a sip of water too, because I feel like I'm starting oh, yeah. to talk more. No, it's okay. Well, I'm not hijacking the conversation anymore. <laughs> no, it's okay, and I feel like it's okay. <laughs> I also lectured for like six full hours this week too. Oh. <laughs> um, what got me into research is that there was a. I cried. Something made me cry, not in an mm-hmm. emotional way but I sucked at statistics. I sucked so bad at statistics. Like I could not grasp the concepts. Like it was bad. Like my first semester in my master's program, it was really tough. Um, And I remember immediately going to the professor and being like, sign me up. I will be here every hour before class. Like I'm not getting this. I'm going to continue to not get this. Please help, please help. So, like, I didn't do so hot that first semester. I think I got, I might have gotten a D. Maybe it was a C. Either way, wasn't going to count towards the master's program. So, I had to take it again the subsequent year. It was one of those courses only offered once a year. So, luckily, the second year, it was a very different instructor who, like, it made total sense to me with a different professor and also kind of going through it. So, that was my master's program. Part of the master's program is very research-oriented. Um, at that time I was like still into like qualitative research, um, my master's thesis, um, I gave, I recruited a lot, a bunch of black women from New London County and gave them disposable cameras. And I used a technique called photo voice where they would take images of their either lived, lived experiences in the context, um, of health. So, I mean, even then I wasn't really research what I would call like, you know, quantitative, heavily, like mathematically research oriented. I, I struggled with it. So when I got into URI, um, I you have three focus areas to choose from. One of them is developmental, which is really looking at like you know ch- children or adolescents. Um, the other is uh, like race and diversity, and that one's just so obvious and so easy mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. And the third one was methodology, which was going to be heavy and difficult. And I said. I'm going to do methodology because I was really stubborn. I'm like, I'll be damned if there's a topic that's going to make me cry. Like I'm going to make stats my bitch. Like I really <laughs> want to. <laughs> and so I, I, I tortured myself. Like, and I could, I just put myself through really hard stuff and I did, I never earned like, you know, perfect A's in it, but I was, you know, high B's. I remember the first time I took a stats course outside of um, psychology or the social sciences. And let me tell you what you are. I, I'm these are people like my my direct advisor Lisa Harlow she was the editor of a book called Psychometrica which is just like the nerdiest of the nerd um like stats um peer-reviewed empirical journal like out there like these are heavy people like there's people whose statistics are named after them there at the school so like I just I just really jumped into the deep end and so I remember taking my first class outside of these amazing people who were big psych stats people and I took a class in the math department (laughs) and I was not only the only woman I was like the only American born person so Mm -hmm. what I mean to say by this is I walked into a room that was all male 
and like a 50 50 split of like southeast asia and like asia asia so they were either like what people would say asian or indian would be the, the best ways to describe it so i mean i remember walking into that class and just looking around and being like oh shit like i'm what am i doing but i persisted and so i i i got into um structural equation modeling it's what it's called the type of research i was doing in my in my um my phd program just um out of spite <laughs> and so i learned how to do really hard stuff so i could you know i could look at some really some complicated questions yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and so you probably want to know what those questions are, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm reading, I, I see your profile here and it's like conceptualization. Con, okay, if I could talk. No, it's okay. Me Conceptualizations <laughs> of health and resiliency in the face of microaggressions. Is that? Um, yeah, that was a cute little, that was, yeah, so that was something where I developed a measure um, and people really like that. That's been, that's been like my most cited piece of research. I don't know, that one's still getting pinged, like. Um, folks tend to like that, that, that little measure. It's a 10 item survey I developed. Um, and it's been used by a lot of medical folks like obstetrics and gynecologists, um, patient care, you know, patient, um, care centers where the outcomes of the patients are really considered. So that was just something I did early kind of in my career. I developed a measure. Um, it was a pilot study for my dissertation that was successful in my dissertation research. So I ended up publishing it, um, but I guess I think I've done a lot of research and it's been, you know, sometimes you do the things that you want to do because you have colleagues that are interested in it and you jump on it. But I think the research I'm doing now, um, I'm, I'm consulting on a research grant um, and then I'm hoping to take on the, the, sub, the follow up grant to that. I would be either serving as like principal investigator or co-principal investigator. But um, I think if I'm going to talk about research, I just want to get to the thing I'm doing now, which is you know, the stories of how I got there are, are, could be a whole other podcast, but what I'm doing now, I think really summarizes why I was doing research in the first place. Um, so <laughs> physicians are a lore racist, not all of them, right. Mm -hmm. But some physicians <laughs> and it depends, right. Depend on their training and everything. So I've always said, I've always been interested in how physicians interact with people of color um, mm -hmm. in that like face to face, those medical setting interactions and so at the university of washington um a piece of technology was developed and there's a patent for it and they've used it um the national board of medical examiners uses this across so like every med school now has access to this this piece of technology and it's called video communication assessment so it's an app where you know during their med school training during residency physicians get to practice talking to patients and then they get feedback about how they did um, that might seem like really cutting edge technology, but I mean, right. Doctors should learn how to talk to the patients. Um, so there's a video communication assessment tool where again, residents in medical school will get like a little, you know, an actor, if a patient will pop up on their phone, they'll have a little scenario. They'll say, this is what happened to me. The doctor then records their response back into the app. And then they're recording their response to the patient goes out to like small little pools of like 10 to 12 people. And those little pools of people evaluate the quality of the doctor's response. You know, is that what you would have wanted your doctor to say? How did he do? What, what would they have done differently? Mm -hmm. Et cetera. So that piece of technology is, um, is existing. It's been around for a while. So I got pulled on as a, as a consultant because they, they wanted to start seeing if they could use that technology, um, to solve for diversity and inclusion issues. 
So what I'm doing right now, um, and you know, everything's been filmed, like the studies underway, like residents at the university of Washington will just start seeing these, these, and you know, we'll get the data soon. But what we have are, you know, six scenarios of patients reporting their to their physicians, you know, racist encounters. Like I had this other physician, something racist happened. Um, let me try to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so in one scenario, a, a black woman is saying, you know, I'm looking for a new gynecologist. My last gynecologist made really insulting comments um, to me. I'm drawing a blank on this research. Forgive me. Another scenario is a woman who's wearing a hijab and um, the dermatologist, like she had a problem with her hand, but her dermatologist still wanted her to take her, her job off. And she's like, why, why would you ask her to do that? So yeah. these scenarios are like manifested micro aggressions. Um, another one, another example of, you know, that's going to be in this app is uh, a black man who was getting a, a skin biopsy from a dermatologist and it was uncomfortable. The dermatologist was like, ah, suck it up. You know, you got thick skin, you can deal with it. So mm -hmm. these are just really commonplace patient complaints but these are all people of um black indigenous um middle eastern hispanic background the other cool thing about this is we also have scenarios where um physicians are like gosh i wish i i've lost my words um we're trying to train doctors to to know what to say to their patients but we're also trying to train doctors to know what to say to their colleagues so we also have half of the other scenarios are instances in where their colleagues have had some kind of negative experience. For example, um, like their fellow residents, someone asked to touch the woman's curly hair or something like that. So we're using this technology to help um, develop intervention and give doctors strategies and feedback um, about how they would handle those situations. So like I said before, the doctor would respond, would um, I'm sorry, would respond to the patient and that would be recorded. And that recording of their response to their patient goes out to a pool of 10 or 12 people. And this particular research is going out to like ex exclusively um, like BIPOC audiences. So it's kind of giving residents a chance to, you know, practice handling racial issues that come up in their practice or in their experience and get feedback from people of color. And we're trying to integrate that into regular training kind of across the board <laughs> yeah. as a national standard. I hope that was clear. I'm really sorry yeah. if it wasn't. <laughs> no, I think it was, it was, it was pretty clear. Um, yeah. And do you think those, those doctors who are, uh, I don't know what the perpetrating that some of that racism is it, is it um, because they grew up in a, is, are there is there data on is it because they grew up in a non-diverse environment or is it kind of is it more systemic to something about medical school or, or some combination oh it's all of those things happening okay. at once yeah luckily yeah. the groundwork's been laid like it's well established it's really gross the like the level of endorsement that medical students have of like stereotypes about black bodies particularly especially around um pain tolerance like literally having thicker skin like there are huh. Um, these are endorsed above 50% and not only of people like residents, but of like doctor physicians who are in the first 10 years of practice. Um, these what are widely mean? endorsed stereotypes among oh, wow. medical professionals that are just wrong, that are not true, that are dangerous. Um, <clears throat> interventions for something like biases that they don't know they have. <clears throat> what was that? Are these like biases they, that a lot of people just don't know that they even have? It's not so much about, well, they may not know where they have them or yeah. it's not, you know, they come from different places. 
What's problematic mm. is that they're confirmed on a regular basis yeah. um, because black health outcomes are worse than white health outcomes. So if you have these views about black patients and every day your black patients are fulfilling those, how how do you intervene and be like, hey, actually, you're wrong <laughs> when, yeah. you know, everything has been telling is all arrows are pointing to that. There's a correctedness to it and it's not so um it's just a very pragmatic way there we're past the point of like let's find the root you know and really mm-hmm. attack that i think with a lot of issues especially in healthcare settings where it's a diffusive responsibility like it's not one doctor who's responsible for one individual's health it's many many doctors across many many you know settings and places and times so it's with that diffusive responsibility um, I think it's just time to get pragmatic and like get in there and do something, you know, just figure out what's what we can do. Yeah, um, the solution. Yeah, because yeah. it's really, really harmful. Even the amount of time it takes for a person to have a heart attack to get an intervention like a balloon, um, a balloon intervention um, during a heart attack can stop a heart attack because it opens up a blood vessel. It's pretty common. And the average wait time to get that is like an hour and 20 minutes when you go to the ER. But it's um, it's like an hour and 35 minutes for black people, like across the board. <laughs> and it's just you know, complaints about pain, maybe you aren't taking it seriously. Um, any number of, it's like kind of, there's a million reasons as to why it is. And um, yeah, everyone's, you know, from a psychologist and social scientist point of way, point of view, the scholars, everybody's been saying this and all hands are on deck and like the evidence is, the evidence is there. We all know this. I think it's just, it's time to act. It's time to like, we got to do something, you know? Has there, is there any evidence of, or has there been education um, to what seems like there has been to try to correct this issue and it, has it helped? Yeah, it's tough, right? So like medical doctors are really busy. They, they have to memorize a lot of shit. Like I don't want my, I don't want my doctor to know less about the shit he needs to know because someone made him learn about racism, right? Like that would be shitty. Like they still need to know what they need to know. Um, so I'm mindful of like, it's not easy. And I'm very mindful of, um, the, the pressures of becoming a medical doctor, the stress, the suicide rates, the depression, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like 25% of medical students are, have clinical levels of depression and anxiety, burnout's real physician suicides real. Like I get it. I'm not trying to be like, you guys are all sucking and you need to add more to your curriculum. Cause that's not, that would just be really dumb of me. That would be really naive of me to say. So I think ways of intervening on it have to be mindful. You have to be like, everyone's trying to teach these poor, like medical, not poor medical students, but like, you know, practice mindfulness and self care. And like, that's cute. But like, do you understand what they're going through? Like, you just got to try to match, you know, match interventions that can really, um, that can really mean something to them. So I think it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. No, yeah. Sounds, sounds like a, uphill battle but a worthy cause for sure totally and you know if there's an app like this just seems this seems like a really it's a blend of disciplines coming together i'm like there's an app that can help you telling me i can get in people's like the palm of their hands just a little bit of experience and feedback about talking to patients of color like that's just a like time management why it's a small amount of time it's scalable to the entire u.s like i'm very excited about this project because to me it does seem like so, so, so pragmatic and so, so doable. So I'm pleased to be, you know, the expert psych consultant on this with the, you know, they pulled me on because of my publications and research on, you know, microaggressions and racism between patients and doctors. So I'm just so grateful, like they found the right, 
person <laughs> that I'm on board because these things are getting done all the time, not always with the right people. So, um, also the university of Washington has a shit ton of money because that was ground zero for COVID and COVID tests make a profit. So, um, they literally have like billions of dollars in profit from just giving COVID tests, you know, oh, wow. that, so they came where they were just giving out grants like candy, like who wants to study diversity and inclusion. So I'm really grateful that that's what they did with that, with that profit as well. And what is the, um, I guess how, how long will you be working on this? Do you know, and kind of what, yeah. So what, I mean, are, you, what are you hoping, uh, I guess we talked about it a little bit, but what, 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 uh, what would you hope that might result from this? Yeah. So I would just hope that the, um, you know, as it's a proof of concept right now, the study is a 12 month timeline where we're probably like five months left. Um, and so once the proof of concept is there, we can take it to the next level and start um, implementing it. Like I, I would think the next step is to go by coastal, like instead of just looking at, um, you know, people at the university of Washington, now looking at people at New York city that actually have way more clients of color than people in, um, the University of Washington. So just doing a couple subsequent studies to make sure, um, you know, what's generalizable, what's not. Um, and really the goal is just to get it standardized across, across the board, across the board. Yeah. That that's, would be, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. That would be phenomenal. That would be amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, uh, like hope to be a that. doctor, you have to at least like get feedback from a handful of black people about how you talk to black people that, and it's so easy. Like it's just in the palm of your hand. Yeah. Well, I do so think being, being a doctor is like the way you interact with your, if you improve your interaction with your patients, you're going to improve um, their outcome. You're, you're going to improve their diagnoses. That's going to make you look better as a doctor. So there's a lot of reasons why it would, it would help them benefit them to take that on board. Right. Besides yeah. just like not, well, you know, not being racist is also a reason as well. Right. Yeah. That would be, that would be nice. And like doctors are also black too. So, you know, yeah. that's nice too. <laughs> to know that their that, colleagues, um, you know, want to want them to be there. You know, we work really hard. And I think when you think about the emotional well-being of people who choose to go into medical medical school, especially for, you know, BIPOC folks who go to medical school, their emotional well-being to me um, comes down to, was it worth the hassle? Like people work really, they work their ass off. And at the end of the day, you want to think that all of your effort is worth it. So especially for physicians, you know, who are of color as well, this is really for them, for them too. Cause you don't want them to be in settings where they bust their ass to get there, to help people in their group. And they're feeling day in and day out that like, why the fuck did I do this? You know, like, where's this yeah. going? So if we can at least make their, if we can create more allies to keep, um, black, Hispanic, indigenous, other, you know, everyone, queer, able, all of them, those doctors in training and in medical school, that would be great for the field of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about, um, I think I remember reading that um, it, it might have been um, kind of around the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it was talking about the, that because the um, there are individual police officers who are you know, many individual police officers who are not racist, but it was, I think the argument was that the, the system itself is racist. So mm -hmm. it causes police officers who are not racist or even police officers who are people of uh, color to act in ways that are racist. Um, I guess, you know, relating to the medical community mm -hmm. is the difference between a doctor acting racist or not. Um, is it, can it be as simple as a, doc a doctor who's white versus a doctor who's black? Or is there something about the metal about being a doctor or the medical community as a whole that you think 
kind of causes them to act that way? Yeah, great question. It's it's definitely both. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very obvious power dynamic. Where you take like and you peel the layers off, right? So let's peel off gender. Let's peel off um, like the race. We can even peel off this like physical bodies and size because that's another huge thing in medicine too is size. Um, but like you're vulnerable. You're sick. <laughs> you don't know what's going on, and the only way you're gonna find out even just preventative, like even the biofeedback of like, what's my blood pressure? What's my cholesterol? Like you are in such <laughs> a vulnerable position. Every time you go to a doctor, you don't go to a doctor because you're feeling great, right? Yeah. There's something within you. Like there's something about your body, like your physical, um, you know, self that you can't know without them. So that right there makes it a, a power thing, right? Like that right there, there's an obvious, real obvious power dynamic that this person's going to know my body in ways that I can't. And so that makes it, you know, any misuse, intentional or misperception of use of that power um, matters because it's going to shape the behavior. So that's before you even layer on all the stuff that we know is problematic, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. that like sums it up, right? Like that's, that's, that's it's already um that situation i think like even with like um people who aren't racist you know being in environments that are um you know like you don't have to be you don't have to be racist to benefit from racism Mm -hmm. um you know um so i think being in an environment where you can't be anti racist is the problem it's not about being i'm a racist i'm not a racist or mm-hmm. i'm acting racist or i'm not a racist can i openly be against it like can i openly it's can i be punk about it like can i right i'm thinking about like the adolescent self like can i speak out and say like no y'all are wrong and you can i think there's just some environments where you can't even if you're right even if you're not a racist that's not the same thing as like actively being against racism yeah um, yeah so i've, I've wondered even like if part of being against racism or anti-racism might even just, you know, you would know this as a psychology, but just the ways that humans can be, have unconscious biases. So maybe even like mm-hmm. if you can be open about the fact that, because um, I think like there's in terms of political polarization, if like, especially if you're, um, I, uh, I don't know, enlightened, like, there's no way I'm racist, but I'm, what am I trying, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound problematic. Can there be, yeah, can yeah. It be no, beneficial it can sound, you can, like, but even if it does I sound might, problematic, I, I can might, say I, I, <laughs> I might actually be, have racist tendencies, but I'm going to consciously, like, um, be against that, if that makes sense. I'm, I don't kind know if of. Like, saying I saying that in the best, in the best way, like, to just be open to the fact that, because I think sometimes people, just think that it's not possible for them to be racist and that causes them to continue to have racist tendencies because they're not willing yeah, to I, recognize their own flaws. I also think that like even the language in which we talk about it is also not serving us anymore. Like it's not, we're not, we keep using same words to describe things that have evolved past it. So like, I don't even think racism, racism is the right word anymore. Yeah. I don't think like bias is even mm-hmm. the right word, right? If you think of what that word means, like, you know, like the angle and the, like, I mean, bias is like liking a shirt more than another. Um, but what words would you? The, the best way I think I can describe it, because I teach 
like I un I always say like I unteach race every day. Like that's what I always like joke about my job is unteaching race. Mm-hmm. It's we make observations of the world and we can see differences. We're not stupid. Mm-hmm. We can see when two things aren't the same. We know that, right? We know that like these two things are not like the other, right? We learn this. Our brains do it. So like we see things, we observe the world, we see differences, and it comes down to how we explain those differences. And there's really only two ways you can explain these differences. Are these the design of nature? Is this intended by God, right? Or <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the biological design of the world? Or did we do this to ourselves? Is this, is this the design of nature? Is this the design of man? And so I think if you look at every difference you see in the world and ask yourself, where does my attribution lay? You can start to understand yourself better. And it's not about being racist or not racist. Yeah. Is am I think, do I think that some differences between human are fundamentally natural? Like, cause that's the problem. Like if you really think that we were destined to have some kind of order to us, (laughs) that's like, that's a really bad attribution to have. Like there is, and we see this like even in competitive sports in the Olympics and this country's beating this country. And you know, my son's better at this because he's Italian. And like, we we're obsessed. We're like really, really obsessed with these notions. And it's like, we're not stopping to say like, we're really attributing all of you really think it's the design of nature for us to figure out based on geographical region, which one of us is on top. We are, we are killing ourselves as a species doing this. No other species is so obsessed to like self catalog, (laughs) you know, it's to the point, like there is no hierarchy of man, like on a very, like the biologists have told us this, we know this. So I feel like when you see differences, whatever they are, any difference, you know, whether it's in socioeconomic status, education, poverty, crime, health, any difference you see, you have to ask yourself, am I, which, which is what, what point of view am I more aligned with? Am I thinking this is the sign of nature or design of man? And so if I think for me, what we would call a racist is someone who starts to see the differences in the world as like authentically ordinal like truly it was supposed to be this way and that's really dangerous like if you can't see that a lot of the order the way that things are ordered and structured around us are not things we have worked very hard to put in place if you can't see that that's the problem it's not that racism is the problem like how can you not see that we've made a lot of these structures and these are not whatever you want to call it god you want to call it nature you want to call it biology whatever it is so to me it comes down to like those two fundamental attributions and like how you choose to explain differences when you see them. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it is, um, could be easy for a lot of people just to say, I'm not racist, you know, one, because, um, people know, uh, to say that these days, but sure. they're not interrogating the way that they're thinking about the world or attributing, you know, certain things they say or, or do or, or the way that they think as, as racist. Um, that's just yeah, or that just and not acknowledging that the things that they're saying are not like, <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking back to like the lectures I give, the lectures I've given this week. And I feel like a lot of times people who want to be sensitive, like I understand that, you know, that black child may have had it harder because their family and, and you know, and poverty and like, the fact that you're lumping these things together and not seeing this person as no different than you. Like the fact that you start to like, you're trying to be helpful, but like, do you hear how you're explaining this person? Like, it's just, 
that's um I think that can get that can be a little bit problematic um oh and I was gonna say something else the other thing I was talking about but I totally I totally lost it ah sorry it was something that came up in my class this week and I was gonna say it again here but I completely forgot it oh okay here we go here we go so this whole thing of like explaining away differences because like um brown people are poor i think that the idea mm -hmm. that like brown people have it bad and so the empathy you have for them can be really problematic because you don't even know where that came from you're just like brown people are poor what that doesn't make sense so <laughs> the way like the rough estimates are like the average white family has eight times the wealth of the average black family mm -hmm. right so that sounds really devastating and i can like, good for you for wanting to now be empathic that you've gotten that information. So when you see, you know, the brown kids struggling, you're not going to dismiss them as like, ah, those people, why are they always like that? You might say, no, 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 right? They have eight times less than the average white family. That's, that's okay. okay, whatever. The other thing that's interesting, though, people don't realize this. So sure, white family, eight times more than the black family on average. But when you think about poor people in America, I don't know why people are thinking brown people. The majority of people living in poverty in this country are white. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people don't know that. <laughs> yeah. I truly don't think people know that. The way I hear people trying to explain the differences they see or express compassion or say, I'm not a racist here, why? And then I hear them talk and I'm just like, you don't know that poor people are white. When you think of poor people, you think of ghettos. Like you think you yeah. have, you've associated something with that, but that's simply not true. The majority of poor people are white. And that's why I think where we are as a nation right now, like starting with Charlottesville in 2017. And like, I think people were so shocked by that because they truly didn't realize like, yo, these poor white people are pissed. They're pissed. Like there's brown people doing better than them. Like, but y'all didn't realize that most poor people were white. You thought poor people were black. Like you, everything people clumped like race and poverty together, together. And it was just because of that earlier stat, right? Like, well, on average, white people have more money. And that's just not the same as realizing, you know, when you think of the face of poverty, you should be thinking of white faces. And I don't think people do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. There's more. That's a thing about like some of the what rural Trump supporters or stereotypically is they have a lot in common. They talk about like East Coast elites and like or whatever. I'm like, you realize there are a lot of poor people on the coast and a lot of cities with poor people who you actually have more in common with than you yeah. know this this um, I don't know, rich country singer that you admire. I could be painting <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. too broad Insert, a brush. Yeah, now, like on here. Yeah, um, yeah. What is your, you know, in terms of um, dealing with, what has your experience been with microaggression, microaggressions, either, um, either at the doctor's office or, or um, you know, in, in the in the classroom or on the street? And yeah, um, is that something that you, is it something that you feel it's like a teaching moment, being a teacher yourself? Is it something that, um, um upsets you or something that you've developed a callus to or what is your yeah experience? no it's interesting um thanks for asking it's funny because i've been studying it for so long that i almost like forgot a world in which i experienced microaggressions and wasn't like an expert on microaggressions so it was weird like I don't, <laughs> it's just been like maybe a good like five six years of just not of it being real different for me so um yeah i mean they're 
they're everywhere. They're not, it's one of the, like, they're, it sucks, right? The more you know, the more you experience them. Like, dumb mm-hmm. people don't report as many microaggressions. It's not dumb people. That was awful to say. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> like, the less you know, the less you know, right? You're not bothered. Yeah. When um, someone says a comment to you that's, you know, you don't take it as sexist because you don't know about, you know, feminism. Or you don't know, like, you think that, you know, your role as a woman is to, you know, be. So you, what's interesting, and it's not a perfect science, but what's interesting about microaggressions to constitute a microaggression, you have to be bothered by it. So it's almost, I might've like maxed out, like the more, like, and we also know the more education you have, the more microaggressions you detect in your environment. Like you Mm -hmm. get more pissed off, like you're getting more woke. So you start realizing like, oh, all of these things are fucking backhanded or wow. Like, I mean, you can, you can experience a microaggression. um, There's no statute of limitation. Like (laughs) there's something where you can realize like, oh my God, that thing that person said to me 12 years ago, I just now realized what they meant that was kind of fucked up, right? So like your wokeness can increase and then you realize things are microaggressive. But for me on a personal level, I might've almost like superseded, like I'm thinking of space balls, like we've gone, <laughs> we've gone plaid or then they go past <laughs> to wow, where now I'm like, well, Great movie if I'm not bothered that. by it, is it really a microaggression, right? Like if I'm not, if they're rolling off my back, is it really something, you know, by... By definition, then is it is it, is it still you know a microaggression? But no, yeah. I mean I've experienced them. Um, I the one I experience all the time is you know with age is my age and um, my I want to say appearance. It's probably it's race. I would say race, but it's probably appearance. But um, I work alongside colleagues to make really important decisions about the lives of students who are giving us their tuition dollars, and um, I've made I sat alongside people to like help them hire you know their colleagues or promote people, you know, like I've sat a lot on these communities of people doing big, important things. And I'm not a quiet person, obviously. Like I've made statements, like I've, I've, I've worked with people and those same people I've gotten into the elevator with at my school and they have no idea who I am, mm-hmm. um, which is wild. I've been there all, I've been there eight years. Um, and then when I'm like, Hey, and I see them have to take a second to break, like, Oh, I thought you were a student. So I was, you know, doing my thing where I ignore because our students are all are predominantly Hispanic and black. So I have to see that. I watch their face go through the like, oh, I'm breaking out of this role. Maybe you're not a student. And they start and they have to like realize who I am. And then, you know, it's 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 a little hurtful. It's a little annoying. And then it's really to me, it gets it's a cop out. And I sometimes I get angry, but usually not. When like, oh, you look like a student and they try to spin it like it's supposed to be complimentary to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, it's never, it's never that. Or sometimes like even with my own promotion, um, at like I applied for promotion, you get denied. I had, I applied a second time and I got it. And that's really typical. Like some people have been a, of, um, denied several times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went through like the typical, you apply once, you don't get it, you get it the second time. So a two year process. And in the first year I didn't get it. They said, there's, you know, there's nothing, um, there's nothing you could have done differently. You know, that you, you should, you know, every, you have everything done here. It's really just time. Um, yeah. And I thought that was funny because time is another word for age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're saying if I was, if you added one to everything that I would, I would get promoted. And um, maybe for privacy, I shouldn't disclose this fully, but I applied the next year for promotion and I literally didn't, I did nothing. I hadn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't add a line. I didn't teach an extra course. I didn't have a new publication came out. I swear to God to you, my paperwork was identical. Um, and I got promoted the second time. And so 
you know, they're saying it's time and seniority, but I'm like, that's my age. Like, what the fuck else would you call that? Yeah. <laughs> so that's maybe like a systematic microaggression. So like, there's definitely things that you have to be smart to pick up on it, right? I, 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 I'm not envious, but there was a time where you weren't aware of that. And you're just like, oh, okay, better luck next time, right? And it's almost like envious of this time where you were unaware that these things are like, you know, are, are rooted in some, you know, not so good intentions. Um, so I wish I was more oblivious, but unfortunately understanding how things work, you do detect them more, but I've gotten good to not always, you know, care about each and every one of them. Do you think, um, it's interesting, like, and this is complicated territory in terms of where it comes from, but, um, we're safe, Colin. We dance in the minuet together. We're in a safe space and knowing, uh, my millions of subscribers won't mind (laughs) that, uh, sorry, uh, my, uh, five subscribers. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes I get those confused. Thanks um, for listening. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, and part, partly I think this comes from the internet and the way that interact, um, people interact on the internet, the way that affects the real world. But there's a lot of um, accusations these days of, of people being um, too sensitive, you know, being snowflakes is, is mm. a word that mm-hmm. uh, the, I think the, the right um, bombed on to, which, by the way, the right is, even though, the, um, you know, stereotypically the liberals are the ones that are supposed to be more creatives, uh, the right is really great at marketing. So <laughs> I think <laughs> everyone is capable of being a snowflake, but now it's, it's the left that is um, uh, predominantly. No, it's no, wild. I mean, no, let's just be, no let's be honest. To be, to be bothered by the sensitivity of another, I mean, it's the pot calling the kettle black. That's cute. Yeah. They've identified themselves. I don't, I don't, it's not even a label to, it's really a self-identifying label. It's cute how they've spun it to think that they're calling out others when they say that, but it's just a real call out of oneself to be bothered by somebody else's degree of sensitivity is, is, um, I mean, you're admitting that you too have a degree of sensitivity. It's just, it doesn't, it's almost like a non, a non thing. It's like they're right. I I mean, it's just not even a thing. (laughs) It's like, um, is a byproduct of people being, more aware of microaggression is, is is that sometimes people are sensitive about things not that they shouldn't be because subjective you can't necessarily judge a subjective experience yeah, but yeah. okay for example being having a micro someone might be upset that this other person is saying that they're upset by a microaggression oh so of course what they're yeah, actually yeah. saying is i have yeah. a microaggression about your microaggression yeah and so that's like that would be like a negative byproduct of of more awareness of microaggressions if that makes sense. Yeah. And like, I'm not, I'm stealing Brené Brown here. Something I saw, like she, she nailed it. I'm not like a huge Brené Brown fan, but she did nail this. Like, I'm not making you feel bad. I'm Mm -hmm. holding you accountable and accountability makes you feel bad. You know, like, it's not like I didn't make you feel uncomfortable. I wanted to hold you accountable to what you said. And now I am observing how you manage accountability. And, you know, that's how you manage accountability. When I have to be held accountable, I have, you know, I feel like I have the resources and I don't take it that way because I'm like, oh, I'm no stranger to being held accountable. But I think, you know, when people are held accountable and they have a negative response to it and feel, you know, threatened or sentenced, you know, or misunderstood, um, we all know what it feels like to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe th- something I forgot to say, because I'm so used to just like being, you know, my audience having like, you know, being in the class, but it's a my victims victims of microaggressions are microaggressors you can't be you're not you're not just you're just not on the receiving end we all do it like we all it's it they it flies 
both ways. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, having the experience of maybe being called out as offending someone, like, I just feel like it's so relatable. Um, so it's really not about the issue calling you out. It's your response to accountability. And I think that's what's really being demonstrated here. Like some people don't like when they have to be accountable because they didn't, they said something not thinking that that accountability was going to come up. And then when you realize that a topic like accountability has to come up, it puts them off. And they didn't, when they opened their mouth, they didn't think they were going to have to, you know, explain it or, you know, so I get, I get it. Like I, I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good place to be in. Like no one wants to be that, but. Right. um, Yeah. Yeah. And do, and I wonder if, you know, the internet has created this dialogue where people who, would normally might there might normally be not normally but say i'm blaming everything on the internet but it's That's something cool. i've thought about like uh let, let's say um you know uh uh i saw you out in um you know before the internet and i was i saw you in the real world and i asked to it was like oh your your hair is neat can i touch it and maybe and then you told me like maybe how it's not cool and then um I, you know, I could have said, sorry. And that would have been a learning experience. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and not a good experience for, for you, but, you know, at least like, um, at least there was some learning there, but it's like the internet, like maybe if I said something like that and then you're like, that's not cool. But that person, cause it's like in this more public space mm. might have that inclination to just kind of double down and not, admit they're wrong um, or because everyone else is now piling on them. It's kind of like this, I'm not necessarily saying it's right, but it's kind of like such maybe psychologically makes sense to then kind of feel that you're, you're being aggrieved and now I'm going to like take arms against them. <laughs> um, Cause now I'm upset that all these people are, are piling on me. And I'm not even saying like that person is right for feeling that way. It's just kind of like, I just think it's like a byproduct. It's kind of like almost human nature do you agree or just a byproduct how the way the internet works unfortunately yeah no i think that's a really good question it got me thinking um a lot like i think the critical mass of people really are the people who read those that exchange i think the majority of people aren't engaging in that exchange you know like the people like it's a special person right to go back and forth And not saying not everybody does it, but it's, it's not a special person. Forgive me. It's a special circumstance. Like whatever calls you to really be responsive and reactive. Um, I, I shouldn't say it's a special person because it can be a moment in a person's life where they feel compelled to do it. Right. So it's like very special, <laughs> truly, when someone's like, I'm going to express something. Um, and you can say there's degrees that some people do it all the time and are like pouring their hearts out there all the time. But I think truly most of us, right the real majority we spend most of our time probably just reading those exchanges so like what do those exchanges do and i think what those exchanges do are creating this idea that there's a reality out there and that that's how we all actually talk to each other and that's really we really don't actually all talk to each other like that does that make sense yeah it's perpetuating something that's actually not really like you know like it's just we keep watching it and I think we're starting to think like that's how it is because it's it's there, but it's we're not realizing that what we're seeing are like a series of like very circumstantial, special, I'll keep using that word moments in these people's times, like all put together and it kind of looks like something, but it's really, it's not reality. It's kind of 
I'm going to be kind of pretentious. It might be art. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you're looking at in a conversation or exchange or a call out, that might be art. Like those are, you can't recreate it, right? It's unique. It's textured. And we should just all take it in. But it's just not, it's not real. I don't know yeah. if that's annoying. But, you know, I no, think it's problematic. I, I thought a lot about that, like to how the internet is not real, but then it also has effects on our lives that's, that's certainly real. Like, there's no January 6th without the internet. There's no QAnon. Yeah, it's not like that, that it's not real. It's just, it's no way to conduct yourself. Right. You know, like and when you go out there, if you and... actually were to take account of how you do conduct yourself, it doesn't look like the internet, you know? Like, it doesn't, I don't think we yeah. realize that. Yeah, and it is, you know, people can delete things, but there are screenshots. There are certain ways that things can exist kind of indefinitely on the internet. And that's yeah. strange, too, because... Um, I do think that causes, um, what was I thinking of exactly? I forget, but it's, it's, uh, um, Oh, I feel like it's like, you know, someone can call you out for a past, you know, something you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of, um, I don't know if you saw this, like, I mean, this has happened to variations of this to different people, but I think it was the one that I was just thinking of was it was like a, this, this might've been last year where this woman was named as the editor of team Vogue. Okay. And she was like 27. And then it came out that she had tweets from like when she was 17 or something like that. So yeah. I think it was when she was underage where she said some things that I think could definitely be classified as racist. There was something against Asian people. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm forgetting the exact tweet now, but mm -hmm. it's, it's it things like that where it's like, you know, is that, um, you know, is that, um, fair I, I don't know you know is that uh yeah that... i think the, yeah no i hear what you're saying i think the inner the internet is really taking our ability taking away our ability to just like gain comfort with that those complexities that are naturally yeah. us like listen yeah. i have a PhD, like doctor of health psychology and i always tell my students true story first college essay i wrote um for persuasive a persuasive essay for english and my first ever i went to massachusetts college of liberal arts for one semester, I dipped out and tried to go away to school. I failed every class. Mm -hmm. But the first and like only paper I ever wrote as a college student was to convince um, my professor that smoking cigarettes is good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I'll own like if someone would ever say, and you're you think you're a scholar in health, you know, like I'm thinking of that like, okay, yes, and you can integrate your experiences into who you are. But what I'm trying to say is when the internet and like this idea of calling people out is just your you're really making a spectacle of what is, <laughs> it sounds so corny. You're really making a spectacle of something that's quite ordinary. And that's the fact that we are all really complex. That sounds yeah. so cheesy, but yeah, you know no. what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not that crazy that like you have remorse or even if you don't have remorse, you did something, you know, in opposition to the person you are now. Like that's not that that's pretty ordinary. I think, you know, and so yeah. um, now if you're going to be my Supreme Court justice and, you know, I think it's important to know that you're even if you're just a mild asshole, let alone like you sexual assault people. Like, yeah. I think I do think that needs to be brought to light because that is that's the capacity. That's the job you're signing up for. Like, that's such a very um, like thinking of Brett Kavanaugh and that I almost don't know how that. Like, I just think of that as just so distinct because yeah. <laughs> we're talking about like you know, a judge and moral that like, that's just such a unique thing. So um, I would hate to draw parallels between those two, you know? Mm. No, absolutely. Yeah. 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 
Right, and there is like sometimes it does require doing something wrong in order to learn in a way. But obviously, there's there's a, a, a balance there, and there's a line. You know, if someone yeah. commits um, a murder, there are laws in place, and there's kind of moral understanding things like that. You know, if someone says something that's racist when they're young, you know, and, and then it's um, maybe that's at an age where they can grow or or um yeah you know, and we're continuing to grow and i don't i'm just saying that is i'm not trying to put a cap on it yeah i'm trying to understand it myself <laughs> would that but that is that has existed for so long and we make we make a spectacle of it today and like if it was worthy of being spectated it would have been you know something that people would have, people would have been canceling each other since the dawn of time you know like things <laughs> these things that are like new it's like well if they were if they were worthy of um serving us they would have survived you know like our history yeah. <laughs> so a lot of these like i think we've hit a point where like these new ideas just aren't good i don't think we're producing a lot of good new ideas there's too much like it's a lot of quantity and not a lot of quality um and that's yeah. just by a numbers factor at some point we have to really like it needs to be a real fine tooth met in a new a fine tooth net these days you know <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's newer hard. people fewer people you know not as fine of a tooth like net you know some good ideas came and they sustained but now it's like i don't think we're of an era where we're going to figure out anything really profound or different about being that's going to like really change us socially you know? <laughs> yeah i think we're I just mean, making matters worse <laughs> um it's like we are still humans are still developing at the same rate or humans as are as they ever were ever were but it's like the internet the way that the internet itself is designed it's like tricking us into thinking that we're changing at a rate we're not maybe yeah maybe perhaps. the ways <laughs> like we can't keep up with the technology stopped. that we're creating like the effect that it has on us like it's almost like we can't keep up in a way don't know yeah. how, to, how to i mean we're like the we're I mean, I just think of the phrase, like, we're just a vulnerable species. Like, we're not all that. Right. We yeah. can't withstand that much, you know? Like, we can't, we're not. There's a lot of other things in this earth that can tolerate, you know? If you leave it between me and a tree standing outside for a couple hundred years, like, that tree's got me beat. Like, I'm a vulnerable, I have needs. Like, I can't just stand it, you know? So, like, as a species, like, we're really, we're not all that. I know, seriously. <laughs> Like on this earth, like we really got to stop acting like it. Like these other, these other things around us have really got it going on and we need to stop like, you know? Yeah, they should have a show, you know, there's all that and there should be a show called Not All That. We're not all that, yeah. yeah. It's about like humans dying. No, yeah, just true. about humans dying. Like, <laughs> here are the things we can't do. Do you need to be reminded about this? <laughs> yeah, I think that was called Jackass back in the day, right? Was that the show? Oh yeah, right. That is like... <laughs> Right. That is a way to <laughs> remind us kind of, um, yeah, call the human species a bit, have um, people, whatever they were doing. And uh, by the way, some of those movies, are, I saw the most recent movie in theaters and I thought it was hilarious. But, oh, Jackass? Uh, they're still going? <laughs> yeah. Well, now they're like, so they're like 50 years old that they've gotten like younger people to do their stuff. Oh, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they have watch to. on the side. That's really funny. Damn. Wild stuff. Yeah. I saw um, one of them in the theaters. That's weird how I go to the theater to see that. It's like a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a spectacle. It's, it I is. It think is. Like, 
I think all movies are better in the theaters, but especially yeah. ones that are spectacles. So whether it's like the new Top Gun or Jackass, just something where yeah, it's a big deal. And a lot of the, fanfare. Yeah, <laughs> the kind of visual side of it is, is plays such a large part. I, yeah, I think okay. Those movies, um, yeah, are definitely needed to necessary to see in theaters. Yeah, no, I haven't been in the theater in so long. I wonder what my first one's going to be. Yeah. It's been ages. (laughs) It'll be like a Disney or Pixar thing for sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) By law. I won't have a choice, yeah. Your daughter's four years old? She's three. Three, okay. Yeah, Yeah. she's big. A lot of people think she's four. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, so by law, if you go to a theater, you have to see Pixar or Disney. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I really couldn't even tell you the last thing I did say. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, right. Being, being single myself, it's like, uh, I'm feeling lonely. I should like go see a movie, you know, it's like, yeah, the that's opposite. a really good idea. The complete opposite. Um, yeah. Not necessarily for the better, but <laughs> different. Oh my gosh. I love being, I was like, I love being alone. Not like alone. I love being alone in the world. If that makes sense. I love riding solo. Like I really mm. do. Yeah. Just out and about. Yeah, yeah. Even when I hang out with my family, there's always, no matter what the event is, there's always like a moment in the, you know, the sequence of whatever it is we're doing where I'm just like, I kind of, I drift off. <laughs> yeah, I have like a quota that I fill myself. Like where, yeah. um, right, if I'm at a family event or something, does, there's like a certain amount of hours and it might be like yeah. two hours where I'm just like, you know, I got to get out of here. I'm going for a walk. I'll be right back. Even yeah. at the beach, like I'll go for a walk or things we'll do like, I'll be right back or you guys stay. I'll go grab the food. Like I just need, like I seek out those, you know, independent Amanda moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when absolutely. you're like, I myself am single. I'm like, that would be amazing. Cause I just love moving through the world alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell myself that I'm going like, to no, put that nice. up. It's a good way to be. It's nice. I'm telling you. Yeah. No, it is. And I, it's got me thinking about like, I think like when I was younger and t- kind of taking cues from, the world and pop culture, it was kind of like, I don't know, I, I have to somehow ma- magically fall in love and, and, and get married and kind of mm-hmm. have reach these certain achievements, maybe professionally, but also personally. Mm-hmm. And then like everything will kind of be all set or mm-hmm. I don't, um, I'm not articulating this the best, but it's just, I've kind of gotten to this point now where I'm still trying to figure out that side of my life, but kind of removing the, ego from it removing like the status involved like mm-hmm. whether like, in terms of whether or not i get married like what status that has like trying to remove that from it because it almost it like doesn't actually help like the human experience in a way to like think of um to think of it in that way i feel like a lot of the like inner inner turmoils or you know, things that I work through that, you know, help shape my human experience. I think as, as, as I'm aging, I'm coming to realize um, their existence is there. Like, like, it doesn't matter, like, what you materialize for yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I always tell myself, like, wait, but this is, I, I have these things. It, you know, you think that it's going to change. And, like, there's there's just a persistence to these things that, that don't really um, that nothing ever goes away. And I think that's just, I'm learning to kind of um, accept that it's just, you keep adding things and things don't, it's more like a recipe as you add things and things season. Like I'm just starting to see things like that, where I thought, 
everything was in a stack neatly. And, you know, once this problem is solved, it gets tucked away, you know, and I'm like, that's not, I'm thinking it's more like food. Like once you put an ingredient in, it works its way in there, but it's not, it's not going away. It might not be there anymore. I don't know if that makes any sense. Thinking of like yeah. a soup, you know, <laughs> yeah. certain things you put in there and over time, like they don't stay that actual in that form. They just become part of something, but yeah, I don't know what I was trying to say there. Yeah, it's something I've been trying to wrap my mind around. Like, um, uh, one example would be like revising this novel. I want to get it out there. And there's another part of me where it's like, I'm just trying to remove ego from the equation, like trying to tell myself, like, it doesn't actually matter whether I get it out there and whether or yeah. not it, and even if it does get published, and let's say there are accolades, like, that doesn't matter as well. Like, it does, yeah. but it doesn't. Because um, obviously, like, we um, want purpose and success in our life, but, like, trying to, uh, I don't know, like, kind of separate. Like, don't force it. Like, yeah, do yeah. we really? Like, maybe you don't. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, trying I to, see right, what you're like, kind of, I guess the, um, right, I said. Not like, force it, cir- but, like. Circling around, I say 100 th- words to say uh, 10, but maybe it's that cliche of, like, focusing on process instead of Perhaps. the product yeah and yeah. i was i'm also thinking of and i i was um said i wanted to bring up because it is uh suicide awareness month um mm. and i was just going to bring up the fact that when you, you know you're a psychologist it might not necessarily be your specialty or but i thought it also be like um be, uh, because that's your profession might be yeah. a good opportunity to bring up as well but yeah it was what is it 2022 yeah so january 2020 um my best friend died by suicide um and he was he went to montville actually he was a year behind me in montville we met uh through running ran against each other and then throughout the years became friends and uh, i say best friend because i that was the label that he gave me and it's not that he wasn't my best friend it's just i didn't i guess um i didn't think about that but he would told me like you know you're my best friend and that's what his Wow. widow said when she told me yeah. about what happened yeah. and I bring that up now because I was thinking about like it's like after he died and I was like past the point of like obsessively trying to figure out like why it happened you know like yeah. Yeah. is that almost like doesn't matter at that point or you know if and I do think of someone that makes that decision they don't necessarily know why either because mm. it's not necessarily the right frame frame of mind um and uh but it just like got me thinking because he so he was a um uh army officer um and uh he was always he left that was it was it happened the day after he got fired from his first full-time job after Mm. active active duty and he was um, married had a young baby boy and and um like we, How old was the? Yeah, I mean, men oh, have yeah. post. I, I mean, I just men have postpartum depression too. I that's not widely talked about, but um, I do postpartum think, depression is not specific to gender. Yeah, I mean, I. So it was difficult because, um, when he was single, like we would talk. He was like kind of two different people when he was single versus when he was in a relationship. So when we were single, we would talk all the time, mostly about like exchanging online dating stories when he was in a relationship it was more like he was the caretaker mm-hmm. he was like and he would him and his partner would kind of like um 
look after, give me advice as like the single guy and that kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. a kind of so I never knew there was anything wrong. Um, and the last time I saw him in person was at his wedding. I was his best man. It was like a year and a half prior until he passed and, or maybe about a year. And uh, we like, he was kind of a, he could be an asshole and, and um, or he could be, he was known for being sometimes being like that. And if his family does listen to this, I don't know if they will, like they know, they know that too, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So we kind of butted heads and then I, I moved to DC and I was trying to figure out, I was in this place in my life where I was trying to figure out my, my own anger and how I wanted that, like, um, and how that was manifesting and relationships around just trying to figure out stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, um, loved him like a brother at the time and I always will, but we hadn't talked in a while, um, up until when he passed. And so, but I heard stories afterwards of, of maybe some postpartum depression and, and maybe there was mm -hmm. some PTSD that, um, I, no one really knew about, you know, I remember mm -hmm. him kind of bringing it up, but it was, it was years prior. Um, but yeah, I bring all that for a variety of reasons and not to, to monopolize the conversation, but it's interesting because after he passed, I was going through this phase in my life where it was like, I don't know, it, was, it almost felt like my life was over and not in like a, that I had suicidal ideation. It just kind of felt like, cause my friend, you know, who he got everything that he wanted as far as I knew, like he was all, he was always wanted like a, a wife and a kid and a family and, and, um, it was almost like if you get these things that you want and that can still happen, it was almost like kind of what's the point in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it made me like really depressed and, um, and, um, but also just like, what was the point of that? Me trying to get that for myself. If, um, if that can happen to me. And again, it's not that I was had ideation or have it now. It was more just the fact that, if that could happen to him, then it can happen. You're to like, him. what can't it, it feels like you, you can't protect yourself. Like, then what can yeah. I protect myself from? Like, what's the point of this? Like, what that's if that's what not going like. to protect you from this? Then what is going to protect you from anything? You know? Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah, and it, and it also just like it did get me start get me thinking about, and I think this is maybe a positive manifestation after that line of thinking was removing myself from like needing to hit certain benchmarks in order to feel that I was enough. Yeah. Because everyone's enough, right? Um, um, you know, and... Uh, yeah. Everyone's enough. Like, regardless, I went to graduate from high school or not, or this college or not, or this accolade, or, or even if um, this relationship is going poorly or not, you know, or whatever, you know, it's... Um, or I did something that I feel shameful about and, and just kind of wrap, trying to wrap my head around that. And, um, mm. yeah. And that's, and, uh, yeah. And I yeah. say, and I brought that up and again, like, I'm not trying to take over the conversation, you know, it's, no, no, I, no, not at all. I, it's something I processed, you know, a lot over the past two and a half years, but, um, For sure. No, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, no, yeah. I'm happy to just like, I'm someone who, um, suffers from depression. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was even like before I had my daughter. So it wasn't like a postpartum depression, um, thing. So I've, I've suffered from depression. 
I've definitely, I've had, I mean, I've had suicidal ideation. I've mm-hmm. been in therapy for it. I've never been medicated for my depression um, pharmaceutically, but I have taken um, a number of other like homeopathic routes um, and found like really supportive communities. So um, yeah, no, I mean, I get, I feel like I get depression. I understand depression and like even just, you know, suicidality kind of intimately. And it's definitely not, I don't think of it in a way of me being a psychologist when it comes to like my knowledge of mental health is, is heavily shaped by, um, you know, my own experience, my own experience with the world. So even trying to say earlier, what I was alluding to is like, there's definitely been moments where I'm like, Oh no, but see, like I have everything I'm supposed to have. Um, and more, right. Like I have more than I could need and I still feel awful. Um, and that's a very, you know, that's not a good place to be. Yeah. Um, and I consider myself to be a very mindful and appreciative and like grateful person. And I don't like to have more than I need. And I'm very much so with like being satisfied with what I have. And that's not what depression is. Depression is just being like, I still, um, I just still don't want any of this. You know, it's not about yeah. not having what you need. It's just like not wanting, um, you know, anything to do with anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a depression is like, you know, really extreme um isolation so uh yeah it's tough I think you know and I remember I lost um a friend I was in middle school a friend of mine mine's father um had committed suicide and I really just I and he didn't identify with it strongly but I like latched on to him and identified with him so strongly um because I had lost my father at an early age not by suicide but it was just like the only other person that I had known to have lost a father um, so I remember that being my first um, experience firsthand um, with someone who had committed suicide. But, um, you know, fortunately, like I'm taken care of and I'm, I'm well cared for and, um, you know, things where it gets bad and you have those thoughts don't come. But, you know, when I heard you say, I don't know how you had said it before, but you had said something about your friend's experience where I'm like, oh, he wasn't in the right state. When someone takes their life, they're not in the right state of mind. And that was something that from my own experience and also just, you know, the expertise I do have is, you know, you know, going to school as, you know, study psychology is people are like really clear, actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when they decide to do that. That's not something you do without clarity. Uh, People are very, very sure of what they're doing. And, you know, they, they know what they're a lot of times people are really happy prior to prior to suicide because they've they've decided they just like, this is the right answer. I finally have figured out I'm going to do it. So I think, I think it's a misconception. That was going to say like a little disclaimer that it might be a little bit of a misconception that people who are depressed lack the clarity. And if they were just thinking more clearly, they wouldn't have done it. And it's like, Oh no, they're thinking too clearly. You know, they are of sound mind, you know, people with uh, depression aren't making it sounds ironic. It's arguable, but like they're not making bad decisions. I mean, obviously suicide's a bad decision, but you know what I'm saying? They're not like, you know, incapable of caring for themselves or others. It's just, um, it's just a very distinct choice that you, you know, you are led to believe because of the disease or however you want to phrase it, that it seems so, so reasonable. And it, it is, it is with great clarity that a lot of people do come um, to that decision. So I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there, which oh, I think absolutely. is important when having the conversation. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, friend, obviously, um, I would have been there if he had reached out, but he, um, he had like 100 missed calls and texts on his phone. You know, at some point, he threw the phone out of his window, but I don't think it was that long um, mm. until he took mm-hmm. his own life. So I think like he, 
was he knew that people were trying to reach out to him yeah I think yeah. that's interesting I didn't I guess I didn't think about that that idea of clarity that like he he knew like he was like no I, I know what the right answer is here you know and it's I, heartbreaking because for many people it's the clearest that things have been in a long time that's why it's you know that's the real sadness there like it's really yeah. heartbreaking you know yeah it's devastating and I think about you know um in the ways that he could be angry and it's tough because I was going through my own anger issues and it's mm. like, and mm -hmm. I was, part of me was maybe thinking like, um, why aren't people realizing what I was going through? And then thinking about it, it was like, Oh yeah, I didn't realize that maybe him, him lashing out was his way of expressing, you know, that he was going through something as well. Um, that he had lashed out before. So, mm -hmm. um, can I yeah. ask you a question, Colin? Sure. A question I've always wanted. I mean, I don't always want to ask. I ask this of my husband, too. I feel like, what are you going to do about your people? Which people? Your people, Colin. White men are off the oh. charts. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Y'all killing yourselves. You're killing oh. each other. Y'all are limiting yourself to this. these incredibly boring and limited ways of being that you can yeah. only be like it's so narrow and so boring like yeah. why would you want to be masculine like that's just literally <laughs> the the narrowest most boring possible you know way of exist like what what is going what is going on with y'all yeah, and you're mad about yeah. it like the, the feelings are there right we talked about the actions the feelings like i'm hearing you say that like there's anger and I'm not trying to be so dumb that like, what is a white man to have to be angry about? Like, okay, like word that is, that sucks. Like it's a very narrow prescription that y'all have been given and mm. without it, you keep it like supporting it. And now y'all are killing everybody. Like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Like yeah. what, what the fuck is going on? Well, there's that Chris Rock joke. This is like after Columbine. He's like, I was on elevator and he's like, these two white kids came on the elevator and I dove off, like not going to kill me. <laughs> no, I mean, no, that's, that's real. I mean, that's, yeah. that's real. Yeah. Um, it's not a I'm, joke anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just not as, I mean, that's, I, when I see a group of white, if I see a, an American flag and more than one white male, like I cross the street. Like oh, it's, right. Yeah. Like it's bad. Like it's bad. It's not. It's interesting. After Biden was elected, <laughs> I wanted to, um, I wanted to get an American flag put on my car to take back the American flag, like to yeah, basically like luck. to um, to take it back from the MAGA crowd, like to yeah, make good it. Luck. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. um, then after a while, I was like, oh, maybe not. Or, um, you know, so like y'all are angry. I feel yeah. like that's that's but that's only that's again. But y'all are angry because that's one of the only emotions y'all are allowed to be. Like what is yeah. going on? Like I what mean, is? Think... <laughs> Could you be a rep? I know it's a lot of pressure. And like, I think, like you no. ask me what's going on with black women, I can only say so much. But like for, for seriously, me, Colin, yeah, what the fuck I'm, is going on with y'all? Me personally, I think it came a why lot. Why are you from guys my talking about it? Like... In the in the military, um, and I yeah was uh, that's where that anger came from. And also, I found it. It's like it's like a cheap fuel. Like it's an effective tool. In the military, because there's like a culture what, anger, that exists. Isn't anger is an effective tool. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the best one, but no, like, no, no, I want to make sure I heard it right. You said, yeah, yeah, an effective tool, just like in the sense that 
there are certain environments where um, if you're talking, what is it to be? What is there to be mad about? Explain it to me. Just like that, you're in a stressful environment. Stressful environments. Your job is stressful, um, and you're trying to get people off your back. Like there's, um, so it's more like it's operating within that environment. It's like every uh, you know the same expectations that every other human on this planet is doing and experiencing. Stress. Yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, the universal experience of like stress and fear and, you know, not wanting to be alone and needing resources. I just, yeah, I mean, there was something about the mil- being in, the, just like being in the military where you can act in certain ways that you can't in other places. And I do think maybe being a little rough around the, the edges is more, I think for me, that's, that's kind of where it came from a little bit and um where what came from just some of my my personal anger yeah 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 that's that's just speaking for me you know it's just more coming from this environment of of, so you're you're just being angry because it's permitted and it's encouraged it's like it's conducive to your environment is conducive to anger did i hear that right It, it is yeah and i i i and i don't think i was um ever like a dick in that way. I just think it does exist. You know, I, um, I eventually, I created my name for myself and talking about being comical. Like we, um, the aviation community, we put on these, um, uh, skits, uh, like we have these squadron dining outs and it's kind of accepted that you can make fun of, um, like the more senior officers. So, I eventually, and I was more shy in the squadron, but like that was my way to kind of express. It sounds like follies, like you're doing like yeah. little follies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like these follies. And that was my, my way of expressing myself was these skits. And it was like roasting people and making fun of people. But like that, I got like really into it. But like looking back on it, it was like coming from a place of anger, like me making fun of these people, right? Like it wasn't, Yeah. some of it is was good natured, but it was like, I, I took like a lot, like I kind of like, started to think about that stuff more more than my job you know one because i was like already qualified but is it, I mean, you're not mad at a person right is it mad at a person like more of the situation right more of the situation yeah and some sometimes mad at a person mad at like so and for me personally it's like if i feel like i'm kind of oh, people kind of act how they want but if i feel like that person's coming at me then that's kind of where i have an issue so i think there was some things there where that was the, that was me like letting it out but then i don't i was like hmm, i don't know if i'm indulging in this too much you know one ever told yeah. me that it was now, just something I've... i started to notice and then right i mean like me being in grad school i mean i do think being in the military is specific, it's not like nothing's a competition it's not a competition. Uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, I got to No, what can I tell you what I'm thinking too? Yeah, I'm what always, do you think? I would I wouldn't say this to anybody. Jesus no, no, Christ, no. I could only say this to a friend cuz it's fucking insulting what I'm going to say though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just because like and I and I'm I'm trying to understand it's I'm sure it's valid to you. I'm trying to understand its validity. Like I'm no, trying to understand Yeah, I don't I don't think it's valid. You know, it's like like I'm trying to understand the validity I, of the anger. Okay, here's here's maybe where I think it comes from. Like, I think this is not necessarily. I could have went through this no matter where I went. It sounds like a choice. That's what I'm gonna say. Yeah, it sounds like a a choice. I and think like not a response, and that's very those two things are very different. 
I think like I um going into the military like thought about a lot about myself in terms of like um I I got I'm trying to like in like school like trying to trying to get the grades to get through this like trying to keep my head above water so kind of mm. thinking like here's this system like it's me kind of against this system in a way and I do think that is... well, you didn't have to be there no 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 you're right yeah <laughs> you yeah. see what I'm saying so I'm like yeah. at what point is this anger a valid response no, to the situation that you've put yourself in and that you continue to choose anger and I'm not trying to like roast you, right? I'm not trying to no, destroy no, no. you. But like I as someone who experienced as someone who as a result of so unfortunately, like women and black women are somewhat controlled by the stereotype because you have to engage with the stereotypes used to control you to like just have real feelings. Like, you know, sometimes you are angry, you just happen to be a black woman. And so like it's 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 you're limited, right? So it sucks to be limited. So I'm just thinking of like all the times that I've had anger that is so valid, like, um, I don't know, like not getting paid the same, like getting treated different, like um, truly not getting clapped for. Like I got in my department meeting, um, my my recent public my publication received an award and I announced it and nobody clapped. Um, and then somebody else said, and I said, I'm raising uh, money for a late uh, one of our colleagues that had passed away and no one clapped or said anything for either one of those things. And then someone else said they did something over the summer. They went um, and fixed up like a summer house and like they gave a round of applause to them. So like valid anger, right? And yeah. like, so I'm thinking like all these moments in my life where I have anger that's valid. And then I have to like make a d difficult choice to actually express that or not. And so I'm trying to like understand, you know, like an era of anger is really what it sounds like you're describing. And I'm trying to understand it from my perspective, but it sounds like it really wasn't like necessarily the most valid response to the situation that you chose to be in. I mean, it seems like a lot of the times you were just choosing it because it was the culture and you could. Am I understanding that incorrectly? Like, what don't I have right? Um, because I don't think can, I don't mean I don't, to, think, I don't want to sound like a bitch and be like I don't know. I mean, nope. I don't think I was using anger against like as a leader. I uh, <laughs> so I and I definitely wasn't using anger as a leader. You know what I think it is? I think it's like because I was. If you maybe like walking, if, if one walks through life like thinking themselves as a victim that then their anger is a response to is um um justifiable it's a it's it's a way to um fight the power so to speak and doesn't necessarily that i wasn't necessarily realizing that um that the better response would have or I think, I, I mean, but I, yeah. anger isn't that contextual. It's not like anger is experienced for those who identify as a victim differently from those. Anger is visceral. It's primal. I have a child. You see anger emerge very early. Anger serves a purpose. Yeah. So yeah. if you're engaging in anger and it's not, what and it's serving no purpose, then I'm like, why are you choosing anger? Like, in a very, we have anger for a reason. It's not like you walk through life as a victim and therefore anger becomes a response. No, we have anger. It's there. It yeah. is given, it is there for us right yeah you see what i'm saying so it's like when there's a situation and there's this redundant response of anger yet i don't understand the purpose it's serving i can't help but be like well is it valid anger or is this is a choice or is it a it sounds like a choice and truly i'm trying to understand it as um, and i would i wouldn't imagine that it's a choice or maybe it is 
I mean, maybe, maybe it is, you know, it's something I'm trying to understand. It as. I don't choose to be angry. I choose to be, I'm actively, I actively choose not to be angry yet. Yeah. I, every day I'm presented with things that um, give me real, I have every war. I am, I have valid. My anger is warranted. I'm not trying to be victimized. I don't see myself as a victim. I have many resources and assets. I'm in a place where um, I can bounce back and I have strong coping and truly I don't want anger, but yet it serves me to identify me when I need to act. Like anger is a very good indicator of other things. Like it's a, it's a, it's there for a reason, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think it's, and I think it's something I've, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, yeah, I think well, almost, I guess that's the like, question. Like what was being indicated to you? If, if, if real authentic anger is being activated from a circumstance, it's supposed to be indicating you towards, you know, it's an indicating action me or a solution I, okay, or so like, like what you do, I, like you gotta, where's it coming I, from? What is it, you know? I think it's like, it's a reaction to trying to be assertive. Cause I think I, I think that's, I was not mm. assertive in my life, like growing up. Um, and then even maybe um, when I was in the Navy as, um, as well, cause um it's just, i i didn't really react well to kind of the expectations of being assertive or just like i think i interacted well kind of with my peers to a degree but kind of more the um the expectations of like people that out outranked you and i kind of felt sometimes like squashed and and, and um but instead of like um choosing to leave before so i could have left the naval academy at a certain point when you get grad when you graduate you have to sign a contract and then you're you can't leave until that contract is finished so but um so i, I did have a choice to leave but i do think that that i never i was never conscious of that choice or um i instead chose to kind of like uh talk you know um talk shit with my friends like about this leader behind his back that kind of thing or kind of rage against the machine um um which um, there's a saying that a complaining sailor is a happy sailor. So some of that is normal, but sometimes it was, um, it was preventing me from engaging in my environment because I, it was keeping me, it was like, I was physically in the, in a world, but I mm. was, this is where, writing, this is where it starts to sound a little like Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah. I was physically in one world, but I was, I was a little bit trapped in my head. I was sometimes in my head, like living, sometimes disassociating from that world. Sure, sure. No, I get disassociation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, I mean, you're right. Like I, I didn't have to be there. Um, and, um, like, was the world really giving you things to be angry about where you were, or you were just like finding scenarios in which you could be angry, you know? And then I think there's a difference. I don't think it's a matter of like, you know, I think that there's a difference there. Yeah. Cause sometimes people give, I feel like I, there's people who, I admire where like, I feel like you should be angry and they're not. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I think about now with my, my writing now and trying to write fiction and, and sometimes I'm affected by, or writing things that are semi-autobiographical and there is anger in my stories. But, and I wonder, cause I don't always think like the point of the story is to write. I'm not always supposed to write something that's like, here's an op-ed about how you sh- you're supposed to be. You know, I do think sometimes you should write something that um, just because, oh, like just put it, um, I write someone, something that is, someone is 
acting a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that's like a reflection of how people should be in the world. Like that's not necessarily. Mm. Yeah, no, it's not like an ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The point of stories. Yeah. This is sometimes where like, sometimes the reaction was valid in grad school, but when people said that they were uncomfortable with something that I had written, like that's, is a valid response, but there was another, another part of me like, um, I don't know, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's like the kind of stories I'm trying to write that, that, and that's, and, and with art, it's like, I don't, I just still don't really know. Like there's no right answer. I don't, I don't, and mm. I was like trying to search for answers and maybe there isn't one. Um, but I, I think it's that feeling of agency. We talked about agency. I think you said you felt like you had too much. I think the anger comes from the feeling, whether objectively right or wrong, that um, I was did not have agency agency mm. and now I do have more of a life with agency and the tricky thing with writing is like am I drawing upon past experiences you know what's kind of the the good and what's the right and the wrong way to kind of draw upon those experiences and um um I, I don't really know yeah. yeah so I think that's where that anger comes from is that feeling I of get a it no no I get it yeah and it's something that I've and um and trying to be more assertive it's mm. it's that's when i drop when i draw upon anger to do it that's like and it, it's um kind of a toxic way to do it and so it's something i've um been just trying to kind of wrap my my head around yeah so. and i think <laughs> something really just like straightforward is like Sometimes other people's anger is just not interesting to you, to other people. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, people be mad about shit. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm I'm not mad about that. You know, sometimes another person's anger is just not for, in, in the, in, from the perspective of, like, consuming it or observing it or, like, in, you know, in that artist way. Like, sometimes another person's anger is just not interesting. Again, like, interesting is the best word there. Yeah. And I think that's okay. And I think I try to interrogate it if I bring it up, like bring, so right now it's, and I, I think semi-autobiographical is everyone has different experiences, but, and uh, for example, like I've never written, or I've never read a novel about like the plane I was on. So I think drawing upon semi-autobiographical makes sense because that's like a new cool, yeah. matter or right now. And so, right now, or recently I was working on this story where I was in the reserves when I was in grad school. So writing about, um, this protagonist, he's in the reserves and he's in grad school and the two worlds are kind of going to come to a head at a, uh, uh, a protest that they're going to in Denver against police brutality because his commanding officers in the reserves are in the Denver police department, um, which is, uh, and none of that um, happened in my experience, except for being in the reserves and the. Yeah. Yeah. MFA. Yeah. 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 But no, I do, I have, I, I did like have issues with my, <laughs> commanding officers there and um uh but the only way to kind of write about it was that i kind of made this protagonist like in the in in the wrong or at least you could kind of see it both ways to kind of interrogate that anger in a way so i do think when yeah no that that, and i think but like you said like i wouldn't read that book and i think you have to be okay with that yeah yeah and i do i don't care about the perspective who thinks i don't want to read a book to try to understand the mind of someone who says you know blue lives matter i'm not reading that book and that's oh yeah yeah um and that's not the protagonist's point of point of view
No, but you you can see. I think you just have to be okay with like not. I think you have to be okay with not being. You know, with not being liked or not you, but your material. Not oh, being for liked. sure. Yeah, yeah. And that is something I'm, I think about a lot because um, it's like you want to be authentic, and um, but then I, I do. This is interesting because this goes back to like where I kind of see the two sides of myself in high school, where it was like comical, and then one side comical, one side like self-pitying and i do sometimes um i've had i have i've had that issue in, with my fiction where it's just like too comical and it comes across as crass and then this is like too self-serious and, and so i enjoy the struggle of trying to um find like a uh higher plane of like thinking and feeling or existing and I, mm. I think that's helpful and i i do think i'm yeah using kind of being aware of that I'm not using this as a a place just to kind of indulge in it but I, I might I may have been in grad school and and um you know maybe some of my classmates were were right to not want to be friends with me because of that I'm not, I'm not too sure you know I, it's not, I never spoke with them about it but um I do oh I wouldn't fuck with you if that was the protagonist's point of view yeah in grad school that's fair yeah <laughs> Um, laugh Colin truly yeah nobody I, cares about us like no one really cares about us we we're the only ones we gotta care you know because yeah, we gotta I laugh know. at ourselves <laughs> I know but you're yeah you're, um it's uh um yeah but sometimes I do it is like it are it's hard to grow from experiences if you've hmm, I don't know if this is true but I'm just gonna say it out loud it's, it can be hard to grow from experiences if you feel ashamed about them, maybe there's like a right level though. I don't, there's like a, right Oh yeah. Level. Shame's not going to take you anywhere. Shame's, I mean, that's shame's birthplace is like Connecticut. I feel like that's Connecticut's way of like raising us. I mean, you didn't feel the shame like in the 20 year reunion. Like that's maybe it's not obvious, but it it's manifested itself. Um, It's really insidious in, in Connecticut. Like shame's a oh, real, really? it's a real doozy. <laughs> Why do you, how do you, why do you say that? Um, I don't think, I don't think I know a person who's like, you know, from New England, who's actually adequately, you know, and stayed, you know, and not really broken out of it. I don't think I know anyone from New England who stayed in New England that's really dealt with their shame. I don't think, to me, I don't feel like Connecticut's a good place to work out your shame. It's not mm. the most supportive place to be vulnerable about the things you're ashamed of. Because everybody w walks around Connecticut um, acting like, you know, their shit doesn't sink. Like, they don't have that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's very put on. Like, it's just so, like... Wait, you're saying people are going through that, but they're acting like they don't. Oh, absolutely. They've oh. perfected. They've actually created, like, an alternate universe in which they also believe they don't have that. But at the end of the day, they know they do. Like, it's, it's really just... Um, yeah. Connecticut reminds me of just, like, a set of a play. <laughs> you think Connecticut or more like specific? New I'll London, just keep it to London Connecticut. I said New England for a second. I'll just keep it yeah. to Connecticut. Oh yeah, I was gonna say yeah. like, but do you mean New London or do you mean Connecticut? No, I mean, I guess I could be. I'll keep it specific to New London, so not to misrepresent. Yeah. 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 Well, broadly Connecticut. I married. You know, my husband's from Waterford. That's New London County. I mean, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um. And it's something I think about, you know, I do, I do think with 
I don't know if fiction is necessarily cathartic, you know, it's, it's, cause I do think like if, you know, you read a, re, you read a book, there is, um, you ever read She's Come Undone? No, Were you I don't, I, I don't read, I don't read fiction. Oh, okay. I don't read, yeah. We had it in Miss Kusher's class. And it was yeah. Really... I told you I never read in high school. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> Um, I read the Scarlet Letter. Didn't we do a video? Were you were you in my group? For oh that? yes, yes, right. In my head, it's this is still like, you know, um, this is like the best video. But this is like better than Citizen Kane. Like this oh, is, clearly, it yeah, is. my memory. No, no. It was real world Alaska, and yeah, and about the Scarlet Letter, and it was amazing. It was like pre editing, so you had to like do the <laughs> scenes chronologically. Yeah, yeah, it was like your reality TV. We were way ahead of our time. Yeah, <laughs> I I do think what you have to say is inter- right. What does anger serve? And um, I think for me it was it's just been a way to pr- protect myself. I think because um, if you keep getting angry and it's not serving you and you're not getting something out of it, I have to just you mean right? Like what are we, what are we doing? But I yeah. I feel like that's a new exploration for me only because I just as a mom like you see anger pops up and you're like wow this is not it's there for something it's crazy it's because you're like what because you say you can say to a kid like what do you have to be mad about right and so you really have to start answering those questions and understanding the perspective and like what does the anger make me do you know what does anger make people around you do maybe that's the purpose it's serving maybe it's kind of like you know the skunk sprays its tail you know this the that that's it's not about you know, a skunk, when it's supposed to tell its tail and sprays it, it's not really about the skunk, right? It's about what it does to the things around it. So maybe anger might operate more like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's not about what it's doing to you. It's about the world it's creating around you. Because when you're angry, you can only see the world. And it's really hard to see the world in any other way than what you're seeing it when you're angry, you know? Um, so I think that anger almost like casts a spell or does something to the things around you more so than it even maybe shapes you i don't know maybe who knows yeah i like the skunk metaphor though yeah <laughs> i just and, came up with that i just just exploring that yeah and i'm torn between like trying to hash that out in my fiction or whether right do i need to like <laughs> and I, I there could be something there but right is it is it um would people not want to read it then? And, and that's, it's hard to, uh, yeah, I don't really know. Um, oh, you can't worry about who, I think you can't worry about who's going to read it while you're writing it. You think you just got to yeah. write it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also like trying to. I've also never written fiction in my entire life. So what do I know? Oh yeah. And I, well, I, yeah. And I'm not a psychologist. So I, you, know, you, of... can't, you can't mess up a manuscript. There's only this information to report. Like it's, you know, it's very simple. <laughs> You don't have to be very creative. Yeah. I mean, you do, but that, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, definitely in terms of the way I live, um, like I'm going about the world. I mean, you bring up a lot of, a lot of good points and it's something I'm, and again, it's not like, um, I don't think I, I, I walk around like that, but I, I do think uh, maybe it's a manifestation of a lot of things, you know, familial mm. gender, um, some from the military and trying to 
getting to, getting to the root is sometimes getting to the root is not, I, and I found it therapy, like getting to the root can help, but sometimes it's like just kind of what, what can I do about it can be just as helpful sometimes I found. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because sometimes in therapy, and also it's just like, like try out other feelings, like joy. Like, have you tried that? Like personally and in your writing, you know, like yeah. there's more feelings out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I do think if I the next novel I write would, I think, not be semi autobiographical, so I can like try to put on another like skin, so to speak, and not feel like kind of. Well, joy can still exist in, you know, whatever you're working with, too. Like, you know, it yeah. has to, it should. I mean, even in my, that, that's just something personally I've, I've had to work on, like, consciously to be like, oh, my God, I forgot about joy. Like, I don't know what happened, the pandemic, parenting, but I had a moment recently in my recent years where I was like, oh, fuck, joy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, <a> feeling. <laughs> I know I was going to say, I do think that, okay, if, if I feel like I don't have agency and I'm, feeling maybe more like um, um, a, a victim, you know, that, that word has been kind of bastardized in the recent years. I guess there's some... Submissive, maybe? Uh, yeah, submissive, right? Don't have ADC. Whether or not that's true if I'm feeling that way. That's maybe a form, maybe somewhat true, maybe a form of narcissism. That's, that's um, getting in the way of um, also um, seeing other people connecting with other people and mm. being generous in that, in that respect. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I do find, I found that like going back to the reunion, uh, I, yeah, I was giving Andy Jarvis a ride back. And as we were getting closer, he was like, I was talking about high school. He's like, you focus on the negative things a lot. I was like, yeah, I'm like, it's just the closer we get, you know? But then um, when I got there and I was connecting, just trying, just trying to connect with people and just talk with them and um hearing what they had to say and and that really like all that kind of like melted away like, mm. like sometimes it is like it's it's interesting like i can think one thing about person or maybe what my experience was and then i meet that person and have like a real interaction and kind of all of that um and have a positive interaction all that all that melts away so yeah, I, I think yeah. like what am I trying to say exactly like sometimes um it's just I've been thinking of like I I've been thinking about this like Maslow's hierarchy of needs which I guess oh yeah some people say like isn't isn't accurate or some people say is it is accurate I think maybe I used to think that you you need to reach self-actualization before you can kind of um help others or like kind of have actualization outside of yourself but like i don't i don't think that's actually true that maslow was weird he only worked with like um maslow was weird i like the hierarchy of needs but he was weird yeah (laughs) abraham he would um research women who were at the time um it's certain the colleges he worked at, he was, he did, he developed the hierarchy of needs among women who at that time were like very new, like women weren't really going to college, but this, this is at a time where college was more like, we're going to create really good wives. So he developed that on just like very um, like housewife and training 
um, women. Like a lot of the theory is, and it's when you when you criticize it, you start to see that, and it's really. I just think it's an interesting one, but um, yeah, yeah, no, abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I heard his, or read recently that um, he was like not entirely correct there, or there there were like some taking. I mean, it's with still a wonderful framework to extrapolate. You know, extrapolate a lot of good things. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of you know. I like it. I do like it. It's a good one developmentally. Yeah, yeah, but I do think that that. Been helpful like it becomes you. a privilege like as you work up the needs are not necessary you just get luckier and luckier if you can work your way up you know you just get some people just get what they get and if you get to the point where you actually get to be a thoughtful contributing member of society like god bless you that's a privilege some of us just get to you know are lucky enough to you know work and provide for the people that matter then we die you know like it's just it's such a vast experience yeah um, but at the yeah. same time not so different but you know um, yeah. the needs start to just yeah you're lucky if you're if you're up towards the top <laughs> yeah but in a way i wonder if that like dehumanizes some people in a way you know like well that person is just you know um if the hierarchy needs is dehumanizing some people because it's like well um they should feel lucky enough to like you know buy enough food on the table but those people are also like well it's not lucky enough it's like it's to eat. it's a, it's just a privileged ladder like it's really yeah. all it is it's like all it's representing oh, it's not okay. that they're lucky it's just it's, it's reflecting a degree of luck or privilege um because oh, even maslow himself said no one's at self-actualization he described like it would only be mother Teresa, which again he was very focused on like the hierarchy of needs as it pertains to like the perfect what he thought would be a perfect wife and it's a little weird in that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you bring up a lot of good points and, and um, definitely going to take them on on board because I think I know where some of it comes from and some of it I, I don't. And it's not, again, it's not something that like I, I don't know, like it's not, um, um, I don't want the wrong person listening to this to think like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, a, I'm a dangerous guy or anything. It's no, well, no, no, no. You know what? I'm gonna be honest. You know what I'm thinking. So I forget that it's like people listening. So I'll be, I'll be, I'll. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. It's gonna be outrageous. Okay. In your military background, do you own any arms? No. Okay, cool. Because that's no. why, I, like, I asked, like, I want to know, like, to my white men friends, like, what's going on with you? And you know, if yeah. you're talking to me, like you have a lot of anger and, you know, a military background and I'm glad you don't have arms. Like, I want to make sure um, you're not going to, you know, hurt, hurt people. Yeah. And Am I think I, that this needs to become like a valid thing. I think we need to be able to walk around through our white male friends like you good. You're not going to kill anyone. Right. You're not mad. If you are <laughs> mad, why? What's going on? Like, we have to have it because y'all are fucking up, you know? <sighs> Yeah, and I mean, I mean, we can like, call out other groups for fucking up, but I'm just gonna call out that you know, white men are just fucking up left and right, left and right, and up and down. Like I do think, like, way. in terms of, um, you know, my my friend died by suicide using his own arm, mm. and that, and he was someone who like had a lot of experience with weapons, he was a combat mm-hmm. veteran, and all that. And in in a culture living in the South, where um, it's also highly prevalent but yeah there's a high rate of of suicide among people that uh with you know with weapons so um yeah 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 so or ho- in homicide i mean that's the big yeah. one too the, oh the yeah both. yeah yeah right oh yeah yeah that. <laughs> just a little bit yeah a little bit of homicide with a little the, bit of homicide these days with the gun yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah 
Um, yeah. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's angering us other people. I just think it's, it's more about like ensuring that like I'm living a life with agency going back to that word yeah that's good to know because that has to yeah 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 yeah. i just you know i was just taking the opportunity to like crack into the the mind of like um you know your mind but also the mind of some of the groups you represent because um it's a cool opportunity to be able to do that with a friend you know yeah yeah absolutely and um and also making sure you're safe and the people around you are safe that's nice for suicide you know prevention Because, yeah. right, the trends, you know, if you think, like, who's more likely to really kill themselves in this phone call, you know, truly, I'm not saying that to be, like, facetious, but, like, that's a reality check. And I don't think people are really applying this information in their day-to-day lives, like, checking in on their white guy friends, you uh, know? <laughs> and I do, I don't know, I mean, I think maybe it's, um... no, I, you know, people should know that and so that you should re- reach out you know if if you have an ideation or you know i i still don't know what happened with my friend you know yeah, i don't yeah. i don't yeah yeah um i i just think that maybe he just thought he wasn't worthy enough for he was that he wasn't enough basically mm-hmm. and, and that mm-hmm. reaching out for help might have just been for the proof of that right mm-hmm. that's kind of like the lies that like it's also reaching out for help and also speaking up when your friends, you know, when you're seeing something or when you're, we have to stay connected to one another too. Um, yeah. So people feel like they can reach out. There's plenty yeah, of things exactly. we can do as allies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that is, um, that's part of it too. Like trying to build a, build a bridge there. When you feel like you want to back away from somebody, maybe we need to learn to just actually start to be the opposite and like start even like, I don't want to call him. I don't know. He's been, I think a lot of times we, as we, it's very accepted and normalized for like, as we get older, you know, we have fewer friends or to the point like making friends are harder. And I think we've royally fucked that up. Um, Maybe that's why we're in the position we are, you know, socially. Like that's maybe we are backing away when we should actually be, maybe this is the time in our lives where we're actually supposed to be making the most friends. And culturally we have somehow fucked that up. Yeah. I mean, they talk about the stressors are highest, right? This is the most stressful time for like, it would make the most sense to have the village now. (laughs) As you get older and as you have a family, well, they talk about, you know, like families used to be, it was like, it was like a village raising a child. And now a lot of families now are just doing it all on their own they live somewhere else and yeah and, and yeah. there's more of an expectation it's like well it's just kind of them and maybe like um some daycare that's taking care of it and the family's kind of removed and yeah know, i mean that's the life that's a thousand percent the life you know i live and um i mean that was the choice and i think it's it's great but i feel like this normalizing that we become more isolated especially with the sandwich generation and then you know end of life care you know end of life planning happens so not to be a burden on others and i feel like um and just tying it back to mental health like i feel like we're pulling away from people like i would challenge anyone listening right like when your gut is telling you like ah, i don't want to see this person or do this i think maybe we just have to start we have to start doing it yeah you know yeah 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 it's powerful yeah should we um should we wrap it up on that note? That was yeah, that was powerful. Nice. We'll be going for a while here. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's good though. Our millions, uh, my millions of listeners, listeners. Now our millions of listeners That's will right. 
we'll really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a really great organic conversation, Colin. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you a lot, too. And um, yeah, uh, connect with you soon. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Have a good night. You too. Bye.